This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. Well, I guess then, I know you've mentioned it a number of times along the way, and I've sort of been putting it to one side because it's such a big topic to chat to you about anyway and that's nutrition and how big a role that has played in your climbing in more recent years but also in your studies and in that side of you that really likes to go away and understand um how something is impacting your body your climbing your performance um so I guess climbing is a weight dependent sport and am I right in thinking that's why you started to think about nutrition more that this that weight started to feel like a limiting factor in your in your climbing yeah that, that was definitely the, the the driver initially that's what got me into the, the mode of thinking about it and a lot of the other aspects of nutrition that I think are important for general health as a foundation for athletic performance um I I, I guess I, I I appreciated the power of of uh, of messing about with your nutrition a lot more than I did once I got into it but that was the initial the, the initial driver like I, I I've always um uh struggled with putting on a lot of a lot of fat I think I would be really quite overweight if I, if I wasn't uh exerting quite a lot of um effort to control what what I eat how I eat um so that would be a real problem for me and you know I always need to say start off with and um, that's not the same for everyone like many athletes are actually self-selected in sports because they they have no issues remaining quite lean and so that you know they don't they just don't have a problem they don't need to think about that nearly so much and if they do actually try to get leaner it may well make them worse it all depends on where you are on that continuum there's going to be a an optimum level of of um, muscle and body fat for all athletes in, in whatever sport they do. And it will be slightly different for each individual as well for many different reasons. Um, so people can either be above that optimum or below that optimum or at it. So if you're at it just now and you go and you try and reduce it down the way, your performance may get a bit worse. But if you're up here and you try and reduce it, it'll get better. I've, as an adult, I've never um, reduced my weight and stopped getting better at climbing. Uh, I was just it makes a big positive difference for my climbing um, and uh, it's, it's brilliant in the last few years that people have have talked in, in some ways people have talked a bit more openly and in some ways it's still it's kind of got more taboo to, to talk about it you know it's it's great that people are aware that there are climbers around who have uh, like really quite disordered eating and or frank eating disorders, and they're not eating enough, and that's causing them some real problems. People are getting more aware that that happens, um, and that's great. But at the same time, it slightly worries me that there's a lot of other climbers out there, because there's two-thirds of the whole population who are overweight, that may have problems with that but feel scared to talk about it. Um, so they, so they might feel like, well, they can't, they can't address it because they don't know how to address it. And they, they can't ask anyone because they're a bit scared that talking about losing weight 
as not something you should do. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting way in which it's gone. And and, and interesting, I, I think it, nutrition is really interesting. Um, I actually watched your video about keto for the whole well, time, even though, even though in stages, <laughs> even though I'm not interested in doing a keto diet at all, I'm not even interested in doing much of an intervention because actually, if I'm really honest, I probably sit in that group of people that is, my weight doesn't change much. I don't have to put much thought into it. For a female, for all the uh, body compositions I've had measured, I'm pretty lean. You know, I don't. It's just not my limiting factor at all. But I, yeah. just being interested, I I am interested, and I'm interested in the culture in climbing. And I think you're right in that an awareness around disordered eating, red S athlete health is opening up and hopefully that means that there is greater ease of conversation to for people to feel supported but I think you're right in in the way the conversation is going I think some climbers feel shy to share their experience at um losing weight in a controlled and healthy way because I think in some circles and I've seen some stuff online where then they're having projected onto them sort of the idea that they might have disordered eating yeah it, it feels like a really hard thing to navigate and that's why I think it's interesting a that you've looked into it so much but also you're quite open as well in sharing it and on and your YouTube and and I actually don't know where what started your interest in doing more sharing and content um but you it's great that you still do that and I, I guess you must have to navigate a certain amount of comments and I, I mean I don't know I feel like I've just whirlwind there a bit but I, yeah maybe it'd be interesting just to touch on how you actually find that and maybe the the climbing culture and the community given that you are someone who looks to really try and put out their content that is quite clear and hopefully informing yeah well i mean uh, i've gone back and forth about this for a lot and I've, I, I've been interested in the subject and, and spent a lot of my own time like, thinking about it and reading about it uh, and not sharing for actually several years um like on social media and things um and you know i get a lot of messages from climbers asking me about it because they're you know they're they're faintly aware of like that i'm interested in it and i, I do experiment a bit with it um and so I just sort of think, well, what am I ultimately going to do? Like, I've learned some things that have been extremely useful to me. Um, am I going to just keep that to myself? <laughs> and sort of when it, in the context of spending all my, all my time um, studying climbing for myself and sharing my, the, th the things I've learned with others, but not about that, it doesn't really make sense So. In some ways, I feel like, well, I don't have much option but to apply the same principle to nutrition. And so, therefore, if I'm going to do that, then I just try to do it in the best way I can, um, sticking, to the, sticking to the evidence where, where there is evidence, um, being clear that personal experimentation is just that <laughs> when I'm experimenting on myself and pointing out that there are risks in all directions with, with any experiments. Um, and you know that that seems like a fair way to proceed um it's a tricky one though because like you say um the, the 
diet and nutrition invokes strong feelings on many planes, whether it's to do with weight, whether it's to do with what you actually eat, dietary approaches. For some people, it's it's almost become like a, um, you know, people talk about diet religions you know, mm. and the, the reactions to them often, uh, they're, they're like that. If, if there's any controversy and everything in nutrition is controversy, everything, there's, there's not a corner of it that's not controversial, um, then the, the feelings are, are quite strong. There's some aspects of it that, that don't bother me. The weight issue, that, that is, that's a tricky one to navigate. Um, you know, climbing is self-selected. I remember listening to a talk by a nutritionist on climbing and almost like the first sentence she said, that she said, there's no obesity crisis in climbing walls. I remember thinking, oh, now that's an interesting thought. But what does that, what does that mean? I don't know really how to take that because um, there's, a, there's a selection bias there. There's a survivorship bias, if you like, where the, the, the people who have problems with overweight have self-selected themselves out of the sport. They maybe wanted to get good at climbing, found it frustrating, and then stopped coming to the climbing wall. Maybe they actually felt out of place at the climbing wall. In fact, I've seen people say that, that um, because they had problems with overweight, they worried that going to a climbing wall, that people would, would look at them and they would think that they wouldn't fit in and they would actually feel nervous about that. And, and you know, that, that makes me really sad to think that people would feel like that and that would put them off. So almost I would feel like, well, um, if I felt like that myself, there's almost a responsibility to say, I felt like that too. Um, and I've also experimented with ways to mitigate that that have worked. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I have a responsibility to, to, to contribute um, things. Yeah, things it is always um, a balance, which I think you do really well in saying, I am presenting forward this, these ideas, this content. I'm not saying the other option is bad. So, you know, say if someone is um, a heavier climber, overweight climber, I don't even know what word you would use. We also want, there's there's the side where they should just feel completely like they don't have to change that if they don't want to. Um, And they could just be happier climbing the level they are. Like I, I wouldn't consider myself an overweight climber at all. But for example, I can eat as I am eating now and I can climb whatever grade I'm climbing. Could I climb harder if I was, three kilos lighter yes very possibly I I'm not super skinny I do have weight to lose but do I want to do that will that make me happier Hmm. probably not but the option is there if someone wants to do that and I guess you have offered up some of your self-experimentation and the research you have done and your ideas on it so that if people were looking to try and solve a problem that they they had they they might have somewhere to go with that yeah. The other thing I think about this is that um, it's important to be realistic in any discussion of sport performance. I mean, think about um, think about uh, leading comps. Like, if you want to stand on the top of the Olympic podium in leading comps, <laughs> like you're going to have to deal with this issue. There's no way. There's no way around that. So, the, like, the idea of saying, "Oh, yeah, focus on just the strength part of the." Strength to weight ratio—that's not realistic. Um, you have to you have to manage this well, and and so you, you really have to, to grapple with it. So I'm, I'm like a bit worried to think, oh, just don't—it's not—it's not important. Don't don't think about it. Um, 
but if, you know, if competition is not your goal, and uh, then it's that completely changes the picture. It just yeah, it just comes back to what what your what your goals are and what you're comfortable. I mean, for yeah. me, like my my, my goal um, is to uh, that's the other thing I was going to say was there's also it's important to be realistic that sport performance is not the same as health. Like extreme extremely high sport performance can sometimes come at the cost of health. Um, and you see this across sport. And so if extreme sport performance is your goal, let's say you want to win a bodybuilding com- contest. I mean, those like if you're looking for an example of, of requiring really damaging <laughs> activities to give you any chance of standing on a podium, well, bodybuilding is definitely it. It's like the best example, I would say. Um, so... If you're going to do that, then you can go in with your eyes open and say, right, well, I'll do that. I'll do that once and then never again. Or I'll do that and just accept that there's going to be consequences that are not great. Um, Or I can do my utmost to mitigate them as much as possible. Or I can look at it with eyes open and say, actually, this is not a good idea. (laughs) You know, I'll just be a weightlifter and not a bodybuilder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think if we sort of... um you know, go into this conversation. We know that it's strength to weight ratio sport, but like just driving weight down and down does not always equal, you know, better performance and that people need to make that judgment themselves. I guess bringing it back to you, was there a certain climb that really motivated you to be lighter? You know, was was there this moment where you thought, okay, now this is a decision I want to make because when I consider all these things, actually my motivation for this climb means I want to lose weight plus, and, I, and I'm going to do it to see if my health stays the same. Cause you, you've sort of obviously measured some of that as well in terms of, um, you know, uh, hormone levels, DEXA scan, you know, you've been quite well informed on your health, maybe more so than other people doing a um, dietary intervention would be did that all sort of come about at the same time or was it actually a bit of a stepped approach in that you just gave it a go and kind of went for calorie restriction first and then you know and then some more of the like health monitoring and learning came later well I mean I used to do intermittent calorie restriction for years and years and years to uh to get into realistic shape to do projects so you know I'd often just you'd set it a weight that was comfortable to to sit at um, and then to to get my body fat realistically low enough to to do the climbs I wanted to do I had to to calorie restrict you know within the context of that of that approach if you just saw like um, body composition optimization as a function of how many calories you without care of what kind of calories um, then yeah I had to do that and uh, the, my shift in focus came from when I had all those elbow, uh, not elbow, ankle injuries and I was having my surgeries and all that, and I couldn't walk into mountains. And so I got more focused on bouldering. And um, I was going to places like Magicwood in Switzerland and hanging out there and seeing all these hard boulders, like standing in front of them, trying the moves, feeling the holes and just thinking, oh, I just, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to climb some of these. Um, but I'm just like, even when you know, I try them, I get them wired. I'm just not going to do them unless I uh, have a little bit less body fat. Um, so I sort of revisited it. Um, and I'd been interested in it casually. 
Um, but it was really like uh, starting to look at low-carb diets that um, started to make me think about the whole problem in a different way and more about the, the, the types of food and the effects that different types of food have on body composition. Um, that, that, that's, that's really what got me into like, well, I could do some, some, some proper experiments, really just with a ketogenic diet. And I mean, that just worked a treat for me. Just, it was just brilliant. Just felt was, great. Was that because you felt that just that simple sort of calorie restriction intermittently around projects wasn't really working that well for you anymore or wasn't working as well as you thought? Well, on like, I guess on a mixed diet, one that involved carbohydrates as, as well. It just comes with so many um, costs that come with it. So if you restrict calories, yes, you, you do lose weight in the short term. But it tends to, even if you continue the calorie restriction, it tends to not work in the long term beyond a few months. You tend to just go the opposite way, even though you're continually having to eat less and and, and, and be hungry and feel cold and um, all these other things that come along with it and also perform quite poorly. So, you know, your ability to train kind of goes down, your training quality goes down, you just don't feel good, feel irritable and it's it's no fun it's like it's just not not really good um so but but you know at, at that time earlier on i just thought well that that's just it there's not really another way um and it, when i when i started doing the ketogenic diet that was just such a win because um i was not restricting i mean I pro- like you know physics still apply i there was a yeah, a difference in energy balance that goes along with with changes in weight and body fat. However, I wasn't consciously restricting calories. I was eating as much as I wanted. I was eating a lot of food and feeling good and eating a lot of high quality food. And I was thinking like, well, I'm getting results here at the same time as I feel like I'm really repairing my whole way of eating. And this this feels healthy. I'm eating as much food as I like. I'm enjoying my food. And I'm also not hungry between meals. So I'm not spending my whole time thinking about food. This feels like like healthy and it feels like all the pieces of the puzzle are fitting together here. So I, I just felt like I was onto something mm. and that I wanted to learn more about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I like, I don't know, obviously to a lot of people listening and to anyone hearing about the ketogenic diet for the first time, it can seem quite counterintuitive, can't it? To be like, oh, I was restricting less. I was, eat- you were eating sort of to your heart's content, if if you will, but you were also either losing weight or I guess sitting at a lower weight more readily without like as much restriction. Um, were you actually eating the same amount of calories in both? You know, because you said the rules of physics still apply. Or were you actually eating more calories in the keto diet and losing weight? Or are you eating a similar, but you felt way better? I guess that's the, that's the distinction I'm interested in. Well, as within the limits of, of calorie tracking and how accurate that is, which is not very accurate at all, um, I would say that I was eating the same or slightly more calories at the same time as, as losing body fat. Um, and my scale weight was going down as as well, so yeah, that that seemed to be the the way it worked out, and and I think that made sense. I felt like I had more energy. I know on a ketogenic diet, even now, I feel like I have more energy. Um, I like some things like 
I felt like my requirement for sleep was about 30 minutes less. And, you know, if, if I'd been doing it for a month, I might notice that, but then think, nah. But once you get to like six, seven years, I start thinking maybe that's a real effect. Um, and I, I just I, I just feel like, you know, little markers of, of energy expenditure, like if I sit and I, my leg, my, my leg will bounce. <laughs> um, and I, I just feel like more, more active and quicker, like my, and my, my thinking feels, I, I just feel like I can concentrate better. This general feeling of being awake, able to train, able to function feels good. So I think that's consistent with higher energy expenditure. The difference may only be very slight. Um, but to, to be honest, like I really don't really don't know because calorie tracking is just it's it's so inaccurate. It's I, I really just question all the time whether it's worth doing. OK, that's interesting. Like, so I have heard a little bit about calorie tracking and a lot of the errors that can come into it. But I guess for someone listening who might be looking to um, experiment with their nutrition and, and they might be calorie tracking. Do you mm-hmm. want to just chat through what those inaccuracies are that you that you feel like might make it not worth doing? Yeah, well, they're they're at every the inaccuracies are at every stage of the chain. So if you if if you take like an egg, like is that a medium egg? Is it a large egg? <laughs> There's no like it doesn't it doesn't have a um, a standardized weight that it's it, it comes from the factory. It just is what it is, and every single one is different from the last. If you eat a steak, you know how big is that steak? How fatty is it? Like the 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 amount of fat in it is what's dictating the calories. That's the energy in it, really. There is a lot of protein in it, but, you know. Um, so how much fat does that stake in it? You just don't know. Um, and even if it's a food that comes from a factory and it has an ingredients list and a number of calories per 100 grams, like the, the error limits are like 20-odd percent on that. And then there comes to like, well, how much of that food did you really eat? Like, are you going to weigh out each each and every meal like and if you have a little bit of you know cream with your dessert was it five grams was it six grams <laughs> yeah there's just there's so much inaccuracy um and then there, then there's things like like memory if you do if you've ever done a uh, like memory recall taking a a, a a diet diary from someone and you say right what did you eat yesterday and like you start with what did you have for breakfast what did you have for lunch what did you have for dinner and then you say so and they say, like, was that everything? And they say, yes. And they say, so that was your dinner. You had like, you know, bolognese with pasta. Did you have anything else? Oh, well, I did have bread. And, you know, that was in the memory, but it didn't go down on the paper until you had the reminder. <laughs> you know, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, hard to, it's hard to remember. You know, like, how, how, how many grams of bread? Ooh, about 20. I don't know. <laughs> so... It's, it's wildly inaccurate. So, but it's not to say that it has no use case at all. Some short-term tracking of what you eat can be very useful to, because sometimes you, ha- you might have a wildly different view of what you actually do eat. Um, so it might tell you that, oh, actually I eat way more fat than I, than I realized I did. Um, it's just, it feels like I'm on quite a low-fat diet, but actually that, that meal that I have with my salad, that, that's actually 
you know, a, quite a big proportion of my daily calories. And then that may, may lead to something useful, like to say, well, do I really want to have 20% of my total calories coming from this one food that doesn't have much nutrition in it, like the oil you pour on your salad or something like that? Pure calories, not much nutrition. Is that is that a good idea? So it can be useful for telling you some macro characteristics of your diet. But when it comes to thinking, um, oh, I've eaten 100 calories too many today, then it's not so useful for that. Kind of within the era of just that could have accumulated through the input of all the different things anyway. I mean, even even in the bodybuilding world, people who who really favor that approach of, of tracking to keep you on track uh, with with a calorie target, they'll still say like, um, you know, you will get people having stalls in their weight loss because they clearly are eating more calories than they think they are. What ultimately tells you you're eating less calories is you're losing weight. <laughs> That's all you really need to know. <laughs> Did you did you use tracking when you first experimented with um, the keto approach? Did you feel and do you feel like it would be useful for someone else to gauge, I guess, what is in stuff? Like, I mean, I, I actually don't really know from watching your video. You talk about an athletic ketogenic diet. So mm. I don't know when you first started how what limits you went for with carbohydrate intake. But obviously with that sort of shift in a diet that requires maybe a bit of an understanding of what is in food and maybe how many carbs are in certain foods did you find it was useful or did you actually just go with eating the foods that you knew were kind of right for a ketogenic diet if you know what I mean yeah the 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 latter so I didn't actually track um but but at the same time I did think about what is in food a lot more so I mean, I've never eaten a, a, a huge variety of foods. So I went from a small variety of foods on a mixed diet to a small variety of foods on a keto diet. Um, so it's quite easy to think, well, okay, out of this selection of however many small amount of foods, what do they look like in terms of their macro breakdown and their nutrition? Um, and you know, you only need to kind of like lay that out once to have an idea of what you eat. And I pretty much eat the same things most days. Mm. Uh, so tracking was not really was not really necessary but also um i was experimenting thinking well can i eat this way can i can i live this way forever mm. um so i wanted to, when i thought about what i would eat on a keto diet i thought well okay i'm going to eat eggs and steak and salad and a few other things but that's going to pretty much it um and i'm going to drink tea i'm still going to drink tea with milk in it um I did actually drink tea with cream in it for a while, but I didn't really like it. And I've gone back to drinking it with milk in it. Um, so I was like, well, does that, does that, that's a diet I would eat. Um, so does it work? And it, it does work. And that's really all I needed to know. Oh, that's quite interesting, actually. Well, I think there's a couple of interesting points. The first that you actually ate quite a limited variety on a mixed diet, because I think a lot of people who might look at moving to a keto, uh, maybe because they feel they are, you know, there's some sort of problem they're maybe not happy with um, their diet as it is. Or I think that's often a, a breaking point for the diet that, that it's will become mm. much more limited in variety. And that is something that makes it really hard to stick to. And I guess it's interesting that for you, who was obviously very successfully stuck to the keto diet, 
partly probably because of the positive benefits for you as well right but you actually maybe didn't quite experience that shift in variety that potentially others would um and I guess that plays into because I was going to ask you a bit about that with your change in diet whether there was a change in behaviors or something that you had to think about but maybe there wasn't so much because there wasn't a significant difference in variety yeah I never really worried about variety variety was not like the biggest thing that I got out of eating the biggest thing I really wanted that I could rarely have on a mixed diet was just the ability to feel full and not think about food. I just wanted to have a break from being hungry all the time. And that was just such a huge benefit that it overrode everything else by by far. It even overrode the performance change, actually. Um, you know, although, yeah, you always want to climb a grade harder than you climb. I'm still happy with how hard I climb, you know, it's like, it's, I'm still happy with my climbing. Um, so it's nice if I can push it further, but it's not an essential. But God, I mean, I just always remember being in Magic Wood on this trip when I was first transitioning to the diet and being out the whole day and I'd taken boiled eggs in my rucksack for, for lunch. And I got to the end of the day after this huge day of bouldering and exploring the forest and it was almost dark and I was packing my stuff and I was like, oh, forgot, forgot to eat my eggs. And that was just like a real kind of, oh, there's there's something to this. That ha- I have never uttered those words in my life, you know. I'm always like thinking about, could I have my lunch now? Would that be would that be too bad? I'm I'm hungry, but oh, I should probably wait, but oh no, I'll just eat it. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was a huge thing. Um and variety, yeah. Never really, I just never really thought thought too much about it. The main thing, I mean, although I wasn't eating um much less carbs so I wasn't eating like pasta and bread I didn't I, I thought I would really miss those foods and I probably did for a few weeks but then that that faded and it just became not not important um but I I replaced that with with fatty fatty rich foods like I remember eating like Swiss double cream out of the tub and just thinking, this is amazing. <laughs> it's just so nice. And I'm just like eating it in an, in an unrestricted way. I'm not worrying about it. And and I, I seem to be having all the benefits that I'm looking for in, in the diet at the same time. This is just like win-win. I just thought it was great. Yeah. And I think one thing that I, in my sort of more limited knowledge of a keto diet is, and, and to be honest, probably any change in diet, if people are looking to get a positive outcome and do that little N equals one experiment is you have to stick to it and maybe you have to stick to it for a certain amount of time. Um, what was your experience with that transition? And I guess for anyone, and, and maybe for your own little N equals one experiments, because I know beyond keto, you have done some other different like um, nutritional interventions, if that's what you would call them. Are there certain things you lay out where you're like, right, if I'm going to try this thing and make this change in order for me to see if it will be successful, these are the elements I need in my N equals one experiment. Have you got like Mm -hmm. a bit of a process that you go through there? Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to sort of give it, give it a chance really that whatever diet it is. So, um, generally there's for, for, for most diets and most things there will be 
a period of time you need to do it for, with certain exceptions. I mean, for example, um, but purely by accident, doing different diets, I managed to get, I've had, had lifelong eczema and I managed to get that to just disappear and it just disappeared in a couple of days. So, so things like um, intolerances and, and allergies might give you immediate feedback, whereas if you can find the food or class of food that is causing you a problem and you get immediate feedback from that, then problem solved, you've, you've done it in, in a short time. Something like a ketogenic diet, like I, I read early on that, that there's an adaptation process, um, even to feel normal, you're talking about a month but to, to improve your athletic performance it's some period longer than that which is unknown it may be it may be many months so i just thought well i'm going to have to assume it's the long end of that and i'm going to have to do it for many months to see it to see uh, a benefit i did feel kind of weird for a couple of weeks to in the, the classic keto flu didn't feel bad but i just felt i don't know a bit odd and then after two weeks i felt kind of normal but my climbing was still just okay but then by the third week i was i was starting to feel good again but at the same time as i was just getting lighter so yeah i could just feel like i was climbing well on the boulders did you so i guess like um the main factors there that people or anyone wanting to do an intervention with themselves and i guess this goes for training as well is time and sort of commitment to it and i guess that's probably a mistake a lot of people make is that there's an element of impatience or, you know, they've not been organized enough maybe to like be able to have the, the right foods in. But with the keto flu and with that transition, is there anything that looks into or have you tried like a smoother transition? I don't know if that makes any difference, you know, to sort of gradually reduce your carbs until you are then at, I don't know, whatever the lower enough amount would be that you are in ketosis more. Or did you just go, I don't know, cold turkey, I guess, as you would call it? And is there anything to say that any any is better? Uh, there's, there's pros and cons to both, I would say. So um, if you have a, a gradual change, then that might deal with the, the, the sense of loss behaviorally of like what you're used to eating and like reducing that down. Or it might just prolong it. I, I think it maybe depends on the psychology. Um, but as far as like the how you feel in, in sport and training, I actually think it's probably better to just go in at the deep end because you've got to go through this hard process. And um, it, like the first time I, I tried it, um, like the keto diet, I, I, I sort of moderated my carb intake and I sort of tried to, to do it that slow way. And I just felt like I was, you know, I'm still basically a carb adapted person who's deprived themselves of carbs. So I just felt like I was bumping along the bottom and not just felt rubbish. And when I, when I did it, the kind of end at the deep end way, I had that first week or two of being like, this is like a big major, major change. Um, but then by like the middle of the second week, I was, you know, back to doing 40B again. So that seemed, that seemed much easier overall mm, yeah uh, maybe you make the behavioral changes more quickly that go along with the nutrition you know choosing what to eat shopping at the supermarket you know just kind of um making i mean i, mean, I was reading i was reading a lot um at the time about the diet 
So I, in a way, before I'd even done it, I was kind of immersed in it already. And I was thinking like, how would I eat? What foods would I eat if I was eating this way? So I knew it would feel like very different, but I kind of already knew what my options were for, for what I was going to eat. But a big thing that I think helped me was doing it on a trip. Um, rather than trying to do it at home, like, you know, I'm eating with my family, I'm eating the same foods, and then all of a sudden I'm not, but I'm still like making my, my wife and daughter this meal, but I'm going to eat something else. I didn't do that. That maybe was useful in the beginning. Uh, so I went away on a trip. Everything's different. You're in different surroundings and you're going to a Swiss supermarket instead of a Scottish one. Um, and so the foods are different anyway. So maybe that made it a bit easier psychologically. How interestingly, how long did you read about the ketogenic diet before you implemented it? Were you, did, were you a bit, did it take you a while to feel like it was something you wanted to try in terms of understanding it or? Yeah, that's about a year. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I was, I was aware of it. I can't remember actually the first time, I can't remember what I was reading or where I was reading it, but I remember, I do remember reading about the diet and then trying it for six weeks, but trying the kind of gradual approach. Um, and I just didn't, I basically just didn't make it through the adaptation and I got to about four or five weeks and I just felt rubbish. There was no benefit to speak of and I just tailed it off. But then I continued to read more and especially like the, the following year, um, I remember reading like quite a, f- a few different books and some some papers and, and listening to some online discussions as well and really considering it a lot more deeply and because it there's certain things it sounds like there's something to this and if I'm going to discount it I need to have a good reason to discount it and the more I read the more I think there's something to it and I shouldn't discount it and really I'm going towards I'm going to have to do this by the book to answer the question and put it to bed but at that point I was still expecting I don't think it's going to work for me I don't think it's going to work for any athlete that it shouldn't do really um, but I, I did arrive at the point where I'm going to need to do it properly and just actually run the experiment. That's the only way out of this. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's interesting and, and cool to hear about how long you actually looked into it before doing it. You know, I think a year of like reading about something that you might try and implement before doing it is putting a lot of value on trying to understand, you know, the um maybe the mechanisms and all the foods that you would eat and stuff um and I can see that that would hopefully really line you up to success but it, it obviously didn't first time and it's quite interesting mm. that it sounds like even though you've gone to these discussions and you knew so much about it you still really didn't think it would work yet you were still motivated to give it another go is that was that just because you felt like you'd started something that you hadn't finished and you were just curious or was it because the you were still quite dissatisfied with your mixed diet was that still the main driver or was there more just like a curiosity of like I've put so many hours into learning about this thing I feel like I have to see it through yeah I suppose like many different things going on at the same time one being like um I feel like I should be able to find a way to be reasonably lean without having to suffer to be that way <laughs> and be hungry all the time is that really right I don't think that's plausible with the like the the understanding my limited understanding of physiology it should be possible for me to achieve that 
so why am I not? That was like one question I had to answer. Then there was all the other discussions about like, okay, there's, there's this low carbon ketogenic diets. Why do they appear to have some signal that they make people leaner and they make people less hungry? And there's a lot of debate. There's still a lot of debate about why they actually work. And it's really not all that clear. Um, so even that is a pure exercise in understanding physiology. It's like, why is this working? And, and so it makes you think when you're reading it in scientific papers or in books or whatever, and you're reading it as a sort of abstract observer of this physiological effect, and you think, well, I could experience this. Like if you've got the curiosity, then you think, well, I could try it and actually feel what it feels like to do it, you know. Are these people really just less less hungry? <laughs> Do they are the symptoms they report? The other thing is like with diets is they sometimes sound ridiculous. Like people saying, "Well, I felt like I could concentrate better," and you think, "Really? That sounds that sounds rubbish. I don't believe that." But at the same time, you're like, "Well, so many people say this. Like, is that even plausible?" Yes. Like ketones are a fuel for the brain. That is actually does actually have physiological plausibility. So you think, well, you know, like as your curiosity to try it. So it was just curiosity really to to, to try it. But yeah, I mean, I was trying all these different strategies and still having that that weight issue. That was still the primary driver for me. Mm-hmm. So like if if I could sort of make any shift in that part of my climbing performance, then it would really have quite a big effect, which it did. Mm-hmm. I guess the question so many climbers ask about the keto diet um, or sort of um, reservations they have is because we're the message that carbohydrates are needed for like exercise is quite loud um, and that carbohydrates are needed for the brain. When it comes to the brain, I always find it funny because I think surely it's a bad evolutionary step for the brain to only be able to use carbs because yeah. what about if we ran out of carbs, our brain would quite quickly go. So I think for me, the idea that ketones are used in the brain is, it seems quite um, intuitive in a way, because of course we want that to keep ticking over um, kind of no matter what, but I guess the the sort of shift to that being in the muscles is something people have a little bit of a harder time understanding perhaps. Um, and again, it might not work for everyone, but it, it clearly has for you. And I guess, could you just spend a little bit of time kind of proposing how it is still possible for you to do, to do training, higher intensity training in, in climbing? Yeah. Well, there's, there's two major points to make on this subject. Uh, one is that um, the, the, the dependence on carbohydrate for training and exercise at, at high intensity is partly a consequence of the athlete eating that diet. So they're adapted to that fuel and therefore they need to eat that fuel to keep going. <laughs> and so if you take carb-adapted athletes and improve their carb availability, it improves performance. There's tons of research showing that and that makes sense. So, but the thing is with, with um, a keto-adapted athlete is, are they less reliant on that fuel carbohydrate and therefore they need less and at certain intensities that's true that you see that in lots of research that when people become so-called fat fat adapted the crossover point from where fat is the dominant fuel that's used and carbohydrate becomes the dominant fuel as intensity 
increases towards maximum, that 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 goes higher. Um, so, but it's still only a proportion of VO two max, say, in in running or cycling or whatever. Um, and then that comes to the other part of it is uh, how much carbohydrate is being used in the muscle, and 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 what muscles are we talking about? In like compare the size of your forearm to the size of your thigh, <laughs> and then think about the volume of glucose needed to get you around a 400 meter track in a minute or whatever, um, versus going, going around a board. Like, can you actually physically use the same amount of glucose um, in two minutes of exercise on a board as you can on a running track? I would say, no, you can't because the, the muscles that are exercising at high intensity are much, much smaller. So the volumes of glucose required are much, much smaller. And so my hunch, just a guess, maybe a guess is the wrong word, um, is that uh, the requirement for carbohydrate is going to be lower in hard rock climbing because the muscles that are that are activated at high intensity, you know, we get pumped in our forearms, not anywhere else almost all of the time so the requirements just less and that's why we can get away with smaller amounts of carbs um, the other third aspect to it, i suppose is that when you look at the, the the research on ketogenic diets and sport a lot of it's not really that helpful because they're, they're testing it in science you're testing a very specific hypothesis like so you might test the idea can like basically no carbs work for running and cycling at high intensity? Um, I mean, what the studies show is that if, if there is a performance decrement, it's very slight. So it's really, a, this is an issue for elite level or very high level sport where there's some detriment at high intensity of capacity to exercise. Even then it's small. But I mean, that, that, that makes sense in, in those sports. Um, but when, you, when you're studying that in the research they, they drive carbs really low to see if it'll work but in real life, in real athletes we don't need to behave in the way that those, those research studies are done we are allowed to mix and match and the analogy that I, I give is like if you wanted to do a study on campus boarding and like so we, we, we put a bunch of climbers on a, on a program of campus boarding, we replace all their training with just the campus board and we say right at the end of one month, their you know, rate of force development on a hold was higher and their absolute pulling force was higher. But when we tested their actual climbing performance on like trying to on-site NATA, it had gone down or stayed the same. So therefore, do we conclude that the campus board is of no use? I would say no. <laughs> I think you look at that study and say, well, it improved one aspect of performance, but if we mix it in with to a normal training program, then we might actually see a performance benefit. And similarly, with the ketogenic diet, um, it, it's it, people have described it in studies as a tool in the belt for sports nutrition, and I think that's the right way to think of it. You applying it some of the time for certain athletes to meet certain performance goals, whether that's increasing mitochondrial mass and muscle to increase endurance capacity or, 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 or other aspects of increasing fat oxidation in muscle together with body composition optimization and, and perhaps some other benefits like cognitive benefits. 
then you could mix it in along with different strategies and then you would see a performance benefit. And that's what I feel like I've done and it's, and it's worked for me. And I think that just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of what you said there um, to like sort of pick a few bits out, I guess the first one was the thing that I feel like a lot of people um, come up against when they talk about keto and the question a lot of people have is that glycolytic ability that we feel like, you know, uh, we know that that um, process, that way of producing ATP is not possible with fats in the same way as the aerobic um, system was in the um, mitochondria can use fats. And as you said, it's quite a small muscle and it actually might just be that we don't need loads of carb to supply that. Um, so this might not be something you know, I don't know. With the sort of adaptation to the keto diet and monitoring over time, also do people just start to make carbs more in their body or sort of prior like I don't know is there sort of um a shift in some ways away from ketosis to show an adaptation to the diet such that they might actually make carbs more in their body as well yes that is a big unknown question Mm. at the moment there is some evidence that has shown that uh, people on keto diets uh, do do gluconeogenesis in the liver, like making glucose from other substrates a little bit better. Um, and also some evidence that they don't. It's really, it's really unclear. But there's a whole other side to it, which is there are other routes by which glucose can be recycled in the body, which is when it's transformed to lactate. Lactate is, um, had for a long time been quite a, a poorly understood fuel. Been demonized. <laughs> It's been demonized, yeah, and um, now it's understood to be important. I mean, lactate in blood uh, is not zero even at rest. I think it sits actually around one millimolar. I think glucose sits around four or five millimolar. So it has a, a base concentration. Lactate is continually being produced even at rest and metabolized. And it seems to be a way for the body to... Um, to, to move glucose around and, and rebalance it to other places in the body between muscle and liver and brain. And the, the evolutionary function of, of that design, I don't think has really been thrashed out yet. Um, and it's like implication- a recycling system, I guess, in, in some yeah. ways. I guess the body wants to evolve in a way that allows it to adapt to environments. And, and recycling, I guess, is always uh, something that it probably wants to do um so yeah. that you are not as reliant on external factors maybe there's, there's also a similar i mean the, the this the system works similarly with uh with fats and the way that fats are packaged up by the liver sent out to fat cells and also to muscle and then recycled around in the blood between the ldl particles and hdl cholesterol particles in, in blood so that system has a lot of different features to it that are all about managing the delivery and flow and storage of energy in different scenarios. Um, and so it, it does seem like there's maybe a bit of a new layer or a new chapter of understanding of how glucose is managed. And, and I think that like studying low-carb diets in sport performance actually is an opportunity to better understand 
basic physiology and in different conditions, but it's really not understood at the moment. But so, so I really don't know how to even think about that question of like, uh, why uh, low carb diets, ketogenic diets actually work as well as they do, even in mainstream sports like running. It's, there's just so many unknowns. But certainly for me, I keep coming back to one observation in myself, which is that I, I've, I actually tried to think, well, okay, if, if a certain amount of carbohydrate is needed um, to support my training and performance, I can find that out by just keeping on cutting carbohydrate lower and lower and lower until I hit a point where I see detriment. However, I've gone to lower than 20 grams a day I mean, I, I've been eating a pure carnivore diet actually since the beginning of the year. So I'm just at a month now. Um, I still had milk in, in my tea, but I'm maybe eating like 20 grams of carbs a day. And I had noticed no detriment whatsoever in capacity to train. I'm not doing tons of endurance training at the moment, to be fair. But I am doing, I, mean, I did a, a sort of longish phone AB plus the other day. And I just feel like really good <laughs> so I keep coming back to like well there has to be an explanation for that and um, the best I can currently come up with is that the, the absolute requirement for glucose is low because the muscles that are using glycolytic metabolism are small and also the type of exercise further minimizes the amount of glucose that's needed so, you know we're doing isometric exercise which is not particularly energy heavy to start with and also with the nature of climbing we're having short contractions followed by complete unloading and that actually allows you to use the anaerobic alactic system that is creating phosphate and the available data we have in climbing shows that that is actually quite an important energy system in climbing so i wonder and it's just a hypothesis that that could be doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting, even for anaerobic metabolism, and that glycolysis is maybe not quite as important. But, I mean, I'd love to see more research on that. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, I think you could be onto something, but I think it would be different between people, potentially. I think that it may be if you looked at certain climbers, you would really see that kind of alactic, aerobic, almost polarized um energy usage uh, if you would call it that and that's sort of intermittent quite quick reperfusion recovery of that alactic system and then i think in some other people you might not see that and i wonder if those people may not respond as well to the ketogenic diet and again i mean that's like a hypothesis from me right as well but um in a little bit of what we've Scene, which isn't really looking into this question but it looks a little bit at reperfusion to the you know forearm maybe the force that uh, your sort of force curve you might that you can see the difference between different individuals and you can yeah. see that some people um have like a certain shaped curve and you can see that the oxygen's reproducing in their forearm quickly and others you see that's not the case so you can see at least that those are two different scenarios where the performance outcome like if they go on to a climb they can both still climb it right so it's there's not maybe even a distinguishing you you can watch two climbers and you don't know how they're getting up that climb necessarily like in the forearm but i think you're right that it's it's interesting to consider 
especially for certain climbers, if they wanted to try it, if they don't feel a detriment to their climbing, I wonder yeah. if that says something about the, yeah, what they use when, when they go climbing. Because it's, yeah, it's yeah, just because at this point, because we don't have that research to guide us, um, if you have a good reason to, to try the diet, which is probably going to be uh, body fatness, um, then the only option you really have is to, to give it a good go, to try and do it in the most rigorous way you reasonably can. And if it doesn't work well for you, then maybe you can try some adjustments first. And then if it's still not working, then okay. <laughs> then, then, just, then just do something else. Yeah. Has there been any climb at any stage in your sort of keto journey experimentation time? It's obviously been quite long now that you have tried. One of those sort of something you would think would push you into a more glycolytic area. So really short rest. So, you know, although you're getting a nice symmetric contraction, there's really not long before you grab the next move. It's sustained for a given amount of time. Is there any point where you have felt, oh, actually, maybe there is I need to adjust something a little bit here to support this goal um, and you've made some change there or have you actually personally not really felt that I I have but always there's, there's like there's always more than one moving part going on so um the, the good thing about running out of glycogen is that you you generally know it's quite binary like you know when you've gone off the cliff and um, so for example like uh, one of the more extreme forms of ketosis is pure fasting and ketosis. So in the past, when I've done seven-day fasts, on the sixth day of no food at all, just water, gone and had a bouldering session on my board, I'm absolutely fine, absolutely normal for about 45 minutes. And then it's like, bang, I just can't hold on anymore. That's it, glycogen gone. So that glycogen store is depressed. But while you're still using what little is left, feel fine. But then once it's exhausted, you, you know about it. Um, so I have had that when I've been out climbing um, one or two times. The main time it happened once was uh, on a really hard mixed route with very physical, pumpy climbing that was much more about like um, very strenuous bridging up an overhanging groove. Much more uh, full body, like big muscle groups full body involved. Pump. Yeah full body pump for hours and like clearing, clearing, clearing rhyme above your head, move after move for a couple hundred meters, you know? Um, and it, it, one of the, like the, the last pitch on that, on a crux, I could feel like the power is going. I still got up the pitch, but um, yeah, I knew I was like on the last of my, my fuel there. However, that was when I was doing a bit of fasting so I think I'd fasted like the day before and I was also doing quite a lot of training on the board at the same time. So ketogenic diet or not, you still need to have glycogen to do anaerobic glycolysis. So essentially what the diet is doing is feeling a bit closer to the wind with that, that fuel tank being a bit lower. <laughs> so if you pile on fasting plus training on the board plus strenuous on sighting on mixed then maybe you, you run out and then you you feel that. But outside of that scenario, no, I mean, 99% of my normal climbing, I go about my, my training, I do endurance training on the board, I go out trial climbing, I just feel absolutely fine. 
Mm, yeah and I guess that's where like people it's to make a decision as well about the type of climbing you do or the type of you know um uh, terrain you like to climb on um will always affect like whether any like nutrition um intervention maybe work you know it's more or less um appropriate yeah. I guess um when you've looked at studies in this area which you've obviously looked at a lot and it's clearly quite hard to maybe pull the resources that you think best inform maybe what you um you know what you want to do could you just run through a little bit sort of like the general way in which nutrition studies are done and why that creates some of the doubt the sort of yeah the sort of pitfalls that people could look for so say if I'm someone who's thinking you know what I would like to look into this they start looking at studies and I guess it's something I see climbers wanting to do and then I see a lot of the almost the um backlash where they've been slightly misunderstood so I think actually your understanding of the process of looking for a paper and the way studies are done is is quite useful could you just give like a an overview of that yeah well well god that's a big subject but well I, to start to narrow it down i'll exclude health and epidemiology because that's that's another huge aspect that's maybe not so wrong but just thinking of um like sport performance studies they would they would more generally be trials where something has been done to a group of participants an intervention where you did the intervention with one group and you have the control group that didn't get the intervention and then you see if there's differences on some aspect of performance and there's there's a whole list of of problems potential problems with um if there's an effect that's found like okay we did this style of training or they took this supplement or whatever and it, it seemed to have a performance benefit well was it really a performance benefit what was it about performance that was measured you know was it um aerobic power i mean i was just looking at studies this morning actually on on ketogenic diets just like looking at other literature that's been done and you've got like well aerobic power could be me- measured by vo2 peak the amount of oxygen you can consume as a total absolute figure or it can be expressed as vo2 max per kilo body weight so if the ketogenic diet or whatever implementation made you change weight then the VO2 max can improve purely because your weight went down or it can improve purely because the amount of oxygen you consume went up or it can be some mix of both and that might have implications for you trying to interpret that study so you know if if you're if you're already lean and you're not going to change weight and you look at a study that says well they did this and VO2 max improved well like if, if they only improved it because their weight went down and you're going to do that intervention but change, not change your weight, then you might not see the same, the same outcome. And, or you can get studies where there's a, there's a group effect, a, a mean change, but if you look at the individual data, then it's all over the place. Again, to go back to the keto studies, there are a lot of the early studies were like that, where you've got a study of five athletes. It's tiny. And two of the athletes got much better. Three of them got much worse. <laughs> the mean comes out at no change. But what do you take from that? <laughs> Probably nothing. I mean, I, I, I don't really know. Um, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's countless other 
other ways. I mean, it, it could be just like um, uh, the specificity of, of that study scenario to, to actual sport. Um, it may be that there's some other variable that's at play. I mean, just thinking again of the keto studies, one of the most cited ones was from an, Australia, an Australian uh, research group that did a couple of studies on race walkers. And they, they did this very nicely controlled study, but they did it in the context of a training camp where the athletes were undergoing intensified training. And to me, that was a major problem with that study because they gave one group the trying to keto adapt. They went from a high-carb diet to a ketogenic diet, deprived all their carbs at the same time as piling more training than usual. And that's like the opposite of really what you would you would want to do. Um, so they, they saw a negative result. So is a negative result because the diet doesn't work or is it because the design doesn't work? Mm. So you really just, with studies, you really just have to read the method section, think, what did they do? How how complex is it? Who, who did they study? Um, and really that's a common sense thing for you to sort of stand back and say, are there potential problems here? Mm. Uh, and and then there's also things like other forms of bias. Um, I mean, studies that find nothing are really valuable because if you've got um, a group of researchers who maybe it's in their interest for many different reasons, like publication, like research funding, to find an effect, and they do a study and they find no effect, I tend to trust that a bit more <laughs> because, I mean, I haven't been involved in doing a bit of research myself. You can see it's very, very easy to manipulate data with statistics to think, well, we've got this group of 20 subjects. One of them did something weird. And if we, they, that probably is some, some anomaly. So let's just take it out. And if we take it out, we have a significant effect. <laughs> so is that fair or is it not fair? You could actually argue either way. Um, but if you have a study where you might want to see something or expect to see something and they don't find anything, then that, that adds weight to that, I think, that there probably is no effect. Um, so I, I, I think the answer really is to, to never rely on one study. You have to look at them all and you have to just look beyond the conclusions of the authors. Another big problem is that um, the authors are often bound by peer review and often the opinions of their supervisors to conclude a certain way. When actually, the, you often look at studies and the data says the opposite to what the conclusion of the study says. <laughs> it's really interesting, like hearing you um, talk through this. And I've not done this in nutrition, but as I said, I, I spent some time looking at sort of sports performance research, looking at sort of like female athletes, looking at cycling hormones and like I, I have not done it myself so I feel like I can't really sort of um, comment too much in terms of criticizing but what you said then and some and my experience of looking at studies I'm often like wow they really seem like they've not made the best decision here you know they've looked to do something and clearly there's so many spinning plates right and and, and politics and so much going on but the way you've described it there, and you, you said that you'd sat, sat down to look for some more research um, to look, maybe see if there was new research. 
what are you often looking for like do you think that you're getting something quite positive from it or do you think just think it keeps you thinking about stuff critically or do you ever actually see something and you think huh yeah that's like that's informative do, do you know what I mean I guess because there always seems to be so if anything more pitfalls to look out for the nuggets of sound information um and yeah I don't know but it's obviously something you continue to do and like you said you've something I want to ask you about is your own masters um so yeah I don't know where do you where do you sit on that yeah I've, I've I think for anyone it's uh it's an absolute minefield making sense of of scientific information especially in biological sciences and physiology nutrition all of these things um if, if you look at the whole totality of the evidence then and you look at it carefully then I think you've got the best chance possible of coming to something coherent, something that helps. Um, it's just having all these ingredients at the same time. So like, okay, the data says one thing. And if I try it in, in my own practice and it works and it fits for the data, that's great. And if it doesn't, then maybe I can, maybe I can distrust it. So you're still, you're still being directed by, by evidence, but just, it's just recognizing its, its limitations which are considerable. Um, but you do, I think even in, in bad studies, you still find interesting things, like interesting nuggets of, of information. Um, yesterday I was looking at a study on um, sarcopenia, loss of muscle in, in, in old age, um, and uh, protein intake. And, and the study was actually on something different. It was about plant versus animal protein. But so that was the main discussion of the study but actually what they what they found which was like was more were, were more interesting was that um people that uh ate more protein they ate more calories but they weighed 16 kilograms less and that was that's quite 16 kilograms is quite a big difference in body weight and that was like quite a marked effect so the authors were clearly looking for something else and they discussed something else, but you just look at, oh, in the table, whatever. That's quite marked. That So just looking at the raw data usually tells you quite a lot. Um, so I just constantly keep coming back to that. like And, and, and looking for simple studies, like that's one kind of red, potential red flag with studies is how complex they are. You see some studies and you're like, I've read the message three times and I still have no clue what they actually did. Like, how did they get that result? How did they actually calculate? I don't, I don't even understand where that figure comes from. And that's when your suspicion starts to rise. Like, wait a minute. And then you read, you read it five times and then you start, I think I see what they've done and I don't like it. <laughs> um, a good, they talk about an elegant design in, in scientific studies. You know, you should be able to explain it to someone who, who isn't a scientist and it should be clear and that's not always easy but it's the aim <laughs> yeah and I guess the aim is that it it hopefully should be relatively simple because to some extent there should be probably quite a number of set constraints on the whole system such that you are testing a given thing so in some ways you would expect it to hopefully be quite simple and um, yeah. well I guess that sort of leads me to ask you about and um, you know, it sounds like most likely all of this has motivated you to go and do your masters that you did in um, nutrition. I don't know what it was exactly called, whether that was human nutrition or sports nutrition. Or, yeah. yeah um, and 
I guess, was that an easy decision for you to make? And in you, you actually did your own research. It wasn't in ketogenic diets, was it? It was in sort of more behavioral um, sort of factors for nutrition, was it? Um, and yeah, what made you choose that? The dietary patterns of climbers. Yeah, mm. just like look at them. What, what do climbers out there uh, tend to eat? What, what dietary patterns do they say that they want to adhere to? Um, and how does that reflect on what they what they actually as far as you can measure that which is not very well <laughs> but yeah I actually did the masters because um through my own reading and nutrition I could see that like I was saying earlier like every corner of it is a massive controversy salt saturated fat carbohydrate versus low carbohydrate um it, it doesn't matter which corner you turn to it's like a huge fight between researchers with quite different views on things you know the healthfulness of meat versus plant-based diets and things like that all of it's control controversial so i was just really interested to see how do people in in academic academia and professional nutrition how did they respond to these same controversies that i'm reading about in the research like um you know do they come to the same conclusions as as i do and you know do they do they think the dietary guidelines as they stand are, are the are the best option? And, and if so, why do they think that? And I just really wanted to see how it functions. And it was really interesting to, to see that. And um, and also um one thing I was like aware of is that uh the notion of doing extreme things comes naturally to someone like myself who I'm a professional rock climber. That's like that's literally my job to do stuff that other people think is extreme, um, but uh, many other people are not in that situation. And and I was interested to see how that functions. And because I'm also interested in nutrition outside of performance, just in health, um, and how that functions. I mean, I grew up in Glasgow. It's a very unhealthy city. Many people that I know, even of my generation now, are in a poor state. You know, a lot of Glaswegians by the time they get to their mid forties are not in great shape and the time they get to 60 if they're still alive they're doing well <laughs> um so i was really I'm just really interested in that and, and how professional nutrition deals with that um and it was it was fascinating yeah and and so on the health thing i think that the nutrition world has taken an approach of thinking that it's it's too difficult a goal to to radically change the western diet and the best that we can hope for is to tinker with it and make it less bad. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I, I sympathize with that approach, although I just don't think it's working out very well. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I guess that's where, and you know, I feel like I see in yourself and others this um, comfort with what might be perceived as a quite extreme change or scenario to put yourself in. But I guess the interesting thing to challenge is how extreme is that really and how much are perceptions of what yeah. is extreme play into that so yeah I mean it sounds like you've got probably a lot more from your masters than necessarily what you found out in your you know in your study but um when you did your study which obviously is, is a part of the masters anyway even though it sounded like a much bigger experience than than wanting to do that study were you what sort of were the results you found and were you surprised by them in terms of people's as far as you could measure it um sort of dietary strategies and behaviors in climbing yeah. oh i mean one of the the, the 
the things I wanted to look at was there's a lot of discourse on social media about these diets, like uh, vegan diets. That's a big talking point. Low carb diets also. Um, so I was interested. It's like, well, how many how many people do how many claimers do the vegan diet, for example? Is it one percent or thirty <laughs> percent? And it turns out it's eight percent in the cohort I studied. It was about eight percent, and about seventeen percent were vegetarian. That that's a lot higher than I was expecting. I didn't realize it would be as high as that. Um, of the people doing ketogenic diets, now from memory, I think that was one percent, something like that, one or one to two percent. That is lower than I was expecting, but maybe not by much. I, I don't know. I, I just didn't really know what to expect, but I think that was important to do. It's like there's all this discourse in social media about dietary patterns and approaches, but how much of it actually filters through to what the masses of people are doing? Um, yeah yeah and I think that's interesting it's like what are people's opinions on things versus what they actually what they actually do and I guess with social media it's actually quite hard to untangle that yeah that's right um I mean uh, so so that was that that was one aspect of it as a dietary patterns more than half of climbers reported having no special diet at all um so I mean that's that's interesting to know that so and then in that in that other sort of half-ish there was a spectrum of different approaches like some people um reported being on a paleo type diet or low carb diet ketogenic carnivore uh, actually like the the number of people reporting doing a carnivore diet well, meat or well, animal foods only was higher than the amount of the, than the people doing a ketogenic diet that surprised me it was still low about a percent and a half or something like that um but in the cohort i think that still added up to around 70 people or something i mean that's Oh, wow, that is quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that was surprising. Then there was like things like supplements. Um, so I think um, more than half of people reported supplementing protein uh, as in powder form. And that was quite surprising, the amount of people who lean on, on, on protein powder to supplement uh, their protein intake. I didn't expect it to be quite as high as that. Yeah, especially, I guess, if the um, vegan and vegetarian percentage was quite low, because I guess, you know, I wondered whether you would see a correlation with that, but actually maybe not so much. Yeah. And then the the other aspect of the research was um, I used like a a questionnaire tool that assesses the risk of uh, disordered eating. Um, So it just just is a, a short series of questions that asks you about, you know, your approaches to food, like, uh, how what, how you think about the amount you eat and um, if you if you track that if you try to limit it and uh, how you worry if you worry or not about how other people see how much you eat or how much you weigh and things like that and so that's just like a validated tool to assess whether people are at risk for eating disorders but that, I mean that again that was an interesting experience for me I mean when I when I first looked at the tool like the set of questions. I just looked at each question. It's like, you know, um, are you aware of how of like the content of food and how many calories are in different foods? It's like, yes, I'm an athlete. That's <laughs> just like part and parcel. Like, I I, I don't see that as being um, particularly a, a risky behavior. Like knowing what's in food is just like good practice for any athlete. So I, I'm really skeptical about the the 
the, the tool that I use, but it's just that there aren't really there aren't really better ones. But however, you might see that uh, you could potentially pick up a signal that um, climbers have a higher score than in other sports, for example, and and then be able to say, well, possibly climbers are more at risk for eating disorders than runners or whatever. Um, but it turns out that that wasn't the case, that the, the, the rates were about the same as other sports, um, which was yeah. kind of interesting. Again, I wonder whether that would fit in line with, um, I guess, some of the Red S studies and the distribution of that, which, I mean, it relies on it being diagnosed, I suppose, and a lot of other things, but um, and its sort of predominance in certain sports. And I think because mm-hmm. climbing is a bodyweight dependent sport, it is predicted that it that it would be. Um, and I took part in a nutrition-based study that seeked to see how well-fueled climbers were and whether they mm-hmm. underfueled a bit. And um, and actually, I think a large majority, obviously I do not know the ins and outs of how the study was done, but a large majority was um, sort of said to be under fueling so I wonder if there's a difference between uh, predictors or this uh, test for disordered eating versus actually under fueling but not necessarily having the traits of the disordered eating even though it might have a negative impact on your performance yeah it's it's so tricky because the thing is like how do you estimate energy requirements for claiming I just I just have a, a fairly low level of trust in, in those in those measures. Mm. I mean, just look at like you know, use like basal metabolic rate that you would get from an indirect calorimeter. I mean, even even that, you just add the physical activity factor, which just throws in a massive guess into how how active you are. I mean, it, if 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 you say like yes, I train every day then you might put quite a big physical activity factor on top of that basal metabolic rate estimation. But is, is, is training on the, how much energy does a bouldering session really use? I, I don't know. I mean, I, so it's, it's really hard, I think, to if you, if you go in trying to estimate energy expenditure um, in, in, in any sport, but in, in climbing, I think it's even more fraught then it's, it's kind of it's kind of tricky. You, you do have to go by real physiological measures of, of health. You know what's happening to hormones, what's happening to uh, menstrual cycle is a great signal. Testosterone in men and things like that. Yeah, mm. yeah. I guess it just all comes back to trying to well the approach that you've taken of kind of understanding a given area but then sort of pulling it back for yourself and making sure you monitor the response for yourself and have that curious kind of mindset where it's like, okay, well, what does happen if I eat a bit more, you know, whereas I see people monitoring health, maybe not DEXA scan and hormones, like you said, but, but still being able to monitor their wellbeing. Um, but then it's like, Oh, but I'm definitely eating enough or I'm definitely this. And, and so they're, they're kind of unfortunately missing that step into the, sort of curious area of being like huh I wonder what I could what I could change here and um, mm. I guess based on that like do you think more research or anything like that is something you'll go back to I know you put a lot of work into like your YouTube and you're a professional climber and through that you definitely get to share a lot of this 
intellectual interest, which is really cool. But do you think you would revisit any anything um, in academia? I'd love to, yeah. I mean, um, I'd love to, but at the same time, uh, I'm still just as keen on climbing as I ever have been, and uh, I, I do like spending a lot of time doing that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure if it will, if it ever will. But uh, you know, potentially I could collaborate with someone else to, um, at least, at least in terms of ideas. I mean, it, I did have a study planned that was not related to sport performance in the lab. I wanted to feed people um, different types of fat in a, in a blinded way and look at what happened to appetite. It was a study I really love to do, and that all got cancelled because of the COVID pandemic, and that's how I ended up doing a remote study that was just descriptive in nature. It wasn't the study I wanted to do. Um, so even just doing doing that would be great to return and, and do. Um, and yeah, and like there, there are so many... God, there's so many ideas and studies that would be fantastic to do. Some of them achievable and some of them kind of difficult to achieve. You know, you know the, the time, the time or resources required would be would be awful high. Uh, but yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, um, I feel like you've been a very generous on your time. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I know that nutrition isn't my area. Do you feel like is is there like any points that you think are just really stand out for you um, that you have learned along the way that you think are really important when it comes to either sort of just being curious or objective about your own um, nutrition or if someone did want to try um, a ketogenic diet, if someone listening thought, oh, actually, I, I feel like I would like to give that a go. Yeah, well, um, if, if, you have a, if you have a problem to solve, then it's, it's worth considering a different approach. Uh, so I think that'd be the starting place to think, well, well why, why, would I, why would I change my diet? Um, and it, I mean, it may be that you actually have um, health improvements to make that you don't even realise you did. I mean, I certainly had a huge mood benefit from improving the quality of my diet. And actually, I didn't even realise how much better I could actually feel in that respect. Um, and um, I also had skin problems I had quite bad eczema all my life I didn't realise that I could actually just reverse that with my diet turned out I could um, so I, I didn't even connect it to you know, it wasn't even on my radar um, so, but it, so if, if, there's, if there's areas of, of, um, of health or performance rather than just always thinking of other things it may be worth thinking well could a nutritional strategy benefit benefit that but I think for all athletes food quality is important you know food provides both the the substrate for repair and growth and but it also provides the, the sort of background to your physiological function it, it, it influences the hormonal milieu in your body and the activity of your immune system which people often think of as inflammation um, so it influences your response to, to training, your capacity to train, and 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 how you feel and and, and your performance from from hour to hour and day to day. So, um, food quality is really important. No matter what approach you take, uh, I think improving the food quality is better. Um, so, and I think I think the best way to improve food quality is <laughs> this is this is quite a a, a polarizing and controversial term but to, to eat real food I mean I have problems with that that 
that term and that way of thinking myself because it's, it's difficult to pin down um but most people know it when they see it i mean like i've often thought about any subject like trying to boil it down to one image or one thought and i remember seeing someone uh, uh posting a tweet and it was like nutrition in one picture and they just had a, an aerial diagram of a supermarket and it was like you know the, the architecture of a supermarket with all the different sections and it had like around the outside you've got fruit and vegetables meat dairy eggs and then you've got all the rows in the middle with all the packaged foods and they just crossed out the, all those rows in the middle and written shite across it and you just go around the edge so if you go to the fruit vegetables meat eggs dairy ignore the rest then you've you've won the game <laughs> Except that you don't get to eat cake. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean. And I guess for, from my perspective, which I completely um, admit is not one that's looked really hard into my nutrition and hasn't had to yet. Um, but maybe a situation will arise in the future where I'd want to. But something that I often find useful is to think how many ingredients are on the list on whatever I buy. And that, you know, because then that sort of sidestepping any only wanting to eat certain food groups or whatever, I think that usually just helps give me an idea of, you know, when I make something, it should be made up of ingredients, not with a thing that's got a million different ingredients in it. And I think I think that's sort of what you're getting at there as well. Yeah, yeah. I, it's really hard to, to, to pin down these basic things. Like Some people suggest that as a strategy, like they suggest don't buy anything that has a list of ingredients on it and comes in a box. You know, if you don't, you don't need that for an apple or, you know, a strawberry. Um, so that can be like a heuristic. It's not perfect <laughs> mm. uh, because there are some good foods that do have an ingredients list, um, but it can get you closer to it. Mm. I mean, I, I think just le- learning, learning to cook and making as many of your own meals is another great strategy if you're doing that then you're probably no matter what your approach is then you're probably more likely to be healthy and, and, and eat a good diet and just not run into that many problems i think you also have to which i you have done through learning i think having the understanding and a, and a kind of a belief i guess I suppose this is why you sort of said how diets slightly become like religions but i think people do have beliefs and a faith in there like in an approach that can have a very positive outcome you know it doesn't have to Mm. become super extreme but you just I think that is that almost um yeah I don't know what you would call it not quite a placebo effect but you know you are invested in this thing that you think is good for you and you have like um you know potentially then you can have a slightly more positive outcome from it and I guess that's just for people to maybe not everyone has the time you have to put into learning about it but if they Mm. can go and look at some of your you know your video on the keto diet they might feel that they're in actually just a sort of a better place to understand whatever whatever they decide to try yeah I mean I I was with like with that video I mean that, that subject is something that I felt like, well, if, if I'm ever going to um, discuss it, then it's going to need to be something quite comprehensive. Because what I'm trying to get across is that it's not some magical idea that's come out of the blue. There is actually quite a broad base of a rationale for even considering it. Um, so 
yeah, so that, that's why I sort of laid it out in, the, in that way with all that detail. So, I mean, large parts of the detail are sort of tangential or so superfluous in, in, in one way, but but not in another because it, it, it gives it hopefully gives people the confidence that it's like, well, this, this is not just <laughs> kind of out of the blue. Um, I, I'd like to do more of that um, for for different aspects of, of diet. I mean, um, one that I, I talk about quite a lot is um, uh, the, the, the idea of eating animal foods and um, their healthfulness. And there's many aspects to that, that debate that are outside of health as well. But just, I think actually with nutrition, um, in the wider context of nutrition for health, um, a lot really hinges on the, the idea that animal foods are not healthy. And I, I don't think that that conclusion is robust at all. I, I actually just don't think it's correct. Um, and as far as I can see, the evidence supports that. Um, and so I, I, I'd like to make more videos in the future that really go into that and probably end up being longer, actually, than my previous one, not shorter. Uh, but it, again, it's one of those subjects where you, you can't effectively just do it in five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it really requires the time and I think you're really unpicking quite would deep-seated be the word I don't know traditions you know a bit like the whole sugar thing and the whole controversy that there was around that you know sugar versus fat and and the sort of disgrace in some ways on the scientists at the time that pushed back against those who were saying you know fat is bad for you um and so yeah I think it'll be really interesting when you you spend the time that you do to pull it together in like you said a very comprehensive way like I thought the keto one was and actually yesterday uh, I just um drove up the glen and uh went for a, a short walk and then I just actually sat in the car and did some writing like away from the internet mm. um that's oh that's nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah I wrote I wrote most of my last book in my car <laughs> really <laughs> which sounds sounds that's really crazy. funny it was just that um, I didn't have a kind of office in the house at that time. And, and and it was definitely better to make progress if I had no internet. So I just would like do a wee mini tour of like different spots around the Highlands that were quite nice. Go for a wee walk, do some writing, go to the cafe, do some more writing. And it worked really well. Are you writing with pen and paper or are you still writing on a laptop? But just, uh... On a laptop, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was like, whoa, that's a good effort, writing it pen and paper. Oh, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's really nice to be able to, like, have the light as well, you know, like natural daylight. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it helps with sleep. Like, I know you actually mentioned sleep when we talked last, and it's something I really struggle with. Like, it's probably one of the things that I should really try to sort out mm. if I was going to think seriously about my well, climbing or health. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think not having daylight and working at a computer all day is, is not ideal. Yeah, it's yeah. not ideal at all, yeah. 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 Do, you, do you have like a little recipe for your sleep? Is that something you've kind of actually looked into or, or, or do you not necessarily sleep that badly? It's just something you're aware of. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm a bit more disciplined than I was, um, but I'm still not as disciplined as I could or should be. Um, I need to use my my blue blocker glasses more um and i think i, I might actually just just actually leave them on on my desk rather than put them away so that they're just always there and i just pick them up and put them on because i definitely find that if i'm 
I've got a bigger computer, like with a you know big desktop screen. And I do find that if I edit video in the evening, that definitely affects my sleep without a doubt. So I should either not do that or do it with the blue blockers on. And I do I do stop drinking caffeine at about midday. And I think that helps as well. Um, yeah, I, and, like, and like you say, all the things like bright light in the morning, which I usually get, you know, if I, I just don't know, um, taking my daughter out in the morning to for school, you just see me get a few minutes of just being in the morning light. And it's great. Yeah, it doesn't have to be much. It's actually light when she when she goes out now. In January, it's just grim because it's like it's it's still nighttime when she goes out to school. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember those days. And I guess being up in Scotland, obviously, you're just it's it's really quite a difference. Like when I've driven up to go to Scotland, really like usually in the summer, not in the winter. <laughs> but you notice the light difference. It's like crazy, isn't it? Um, I noticed that even when I moved from Glasgow to the Highlands because um, I, I moved in the middle of June just when it's coming up from summer solstice and straight away I, I find it harder to, to sleep or just a, a real a real adjustment. I think there is actually a broader circadian um, uh, rhythm adjustment in the whole year so in the winter I do feel like December, January I, I think I do sort of slow down a little bit and then in the summer I definitely I'm just more I think I'm just more active overall my, my total activity is higher yeah I, I think that's probably what it is for me just activity and outdoor time because I sleep often quite badly during the winter even though it's dark and you feel like you should be mm-hmm. not in hibernating mode but you know you, you should feel quite like cozy and ready to go to sleep but it's often not the, the way at all I've actually mm. just started using I've used it before the Sam Harris waking up app it's like a meditation right. app um mm-hmm. and obviously there's loads of them right but I've just used this one in the past um because I find doing that really helps with being able to like switch off your mind you know like I often get into bed and my mind's thinking about like what to do tomorrow what to you know just all and it's not stress really it's just like nothing's actually stressful I'm just thinking mm-hmm. um but, but I found that quite useful in the past they're like they're like guided meditations or you can do a timer or whatever um they're not actually really with the kind of goal of sleep like I think there's you know obviously there's some apps that are like for sleep it's it's just for yeah just like sort of mindfulness I, I guess but um yeah I, th- I find his guide meditations quite useful I found it quite useful for climbing probably as well like it's just like focus attention that sort of thing and um, yeah yeah what what's um how long's you know the route that you're wanting to train for? I don't know actually you know the name of it the the nine A is it quite sustained because is it a super long route endurance wise or is it more like sustained kind of twenty meter section or whatever? Yeah, like twenty meters. So um, it's like uh, a four seven C boulder problem into a four seven C plus boulder problem into an eight B power endurance route. So it's just like with no break, even the clips are kind of hard. Mm. There's like just enough spots to clip, like maybe four four times. Um, but yeah, it's just super sustained. Yeah. It, that, that's go. fun to train for, though. Or I, I think that's a fun like level of endurance to train for. You know, it's not too long and grueling. It's like yeah. <laughs> pretty kind of short and sharp. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Um, I mean, I don't... I, I'm, I, so I'm trying that. I'm trying that project. I'm actually having to leave it because it's wet now. Um, so I don't know when I'll be able to, to go back on it, and I don't even know if it's really realistic. But the main thing I'd like to get fit for is lexicon, actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah so to have it all fully under control and feeling like nice and sort of manageable in terms of like in the face of the fall that's that's the goal I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they're, they're basically the fitter on the better, really. Yeah, yeah. How do you, do you ever aim to go like super specific with that? Like in terms of you know the amount of time it would take you to climb it or the length, or do you just sort of go for power endurance training and don't worry too much about that? You just sort of like it will translate because you get mm-hmm. enough time on rock. You know, you it's always a funny one specificity because. Mm-hmm. some people I, I there's a bit of a split say talking about elite level climbers you know people yeah. who are like um you know really trying super hard projects themselves really invested I, I speak to some and they're super into specificity in their training and others mm-hmm. are a bit like I get enough time on rock you know as long as I somewhat hit the mark I'm, I'm probably going to translate it um mm-hmm. and I find it quite interesting that there's those two I think it's maybe more a characteristic of the person rather than maybe yeah. um, you know whether how whether they really like to think about how they make their training specific maybe that's motivating to them or whatever do you, where do you sit along that spectrum yeah I, I on the fence I think um mm-hmm. I, I I mean I've got my own personal experience which is that uh, I've never felt that I responded all that well to um the endurance training on the board I improve but I've never felt like I've been at my fittest when I've been on the board, I often feel like I'm just at my fittest when I'm out doing roots a lot. And I think that comes down to, you know, base, you know, base aerobic capacity, really. Like I find that if I'm, I just go out and on site a lot of E5s, then that's when I'm really at my absolute best for, for fitness. So, and, and I think with something like Lexicon, um, one thing I really need to be conscious of is the angle. You know, it's definitely wall climbing and it's on small holds and you're trying to get a lot of weight on your feet. Um, and I, I, technically, I need to make sure that I do some climbing like that and just be used to really small holds. Like, I think going around the 45 board, although I definitely need to do that, that's that can't be the only thing that I do if I want to, to translate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I actually found that... Um because I tweaked my shoulder at the weekend, I went and did some auto belays at the foundry. So, you know, like, and I'm talking sort of in the low sixes, sort of up to 60 plus. And my forearms were getting really pumped. I've been bouldering and it, it, but the rest of your body feels like it's barely doing any work. And I think it's just a distribution of weight because the angle is lower, the holds are smaller. And it's just, I've been climbing on steeper boards and I think it's something that probably people, yeah, it's quite easy to overlook when you look to train on boards that actually, even if the intensity is right in terms of like you're powering out, you're failing, you know, maybe even the time under tension, whatever. Actually, like most indoor training facilities, you're, you might not be at a low enough angle, especially for an outdoor trad project, but maybe even for a sport route. Um, yeah. 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 No, you're claiming is too fast a lot of the time. You know, you're just them through the moves yeah 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 I wonder if that plays into your I, I I know you had touched on this that kind of distribution or contribution between different energy systems in climbing and different climbers I know I was like oh I think we'd see a spectrum and I wonder if you sit at that spectrum where that combination of aerobic base and that kind of phosphor creatine and being able to just recover within those quite polarized systems maybe Maybe that's you. I don't, you know, from a yeah. genetic kind of 
training history just whatever everything that's gone into your your physiology and and especially like you said when you were talking about the keto diet maybe that Mm -hmm. all comes into play as well yeah yeah exactly yeah I mean I just don't know I mean a lot of people ask me to um, uh, make make videos about endurance training and um, I I, I do feel that there's so many unknowns I I wish I could be more specific or even thinking about what do I know myself from my own training <laughs> I think the more I think about it the less I feel the less I feel I know <laughs> it'd be interesting when you do the critical force testing actually mm-hmm. because you know if that might give an indication of what you can sustain sort of not necessarily fully aerobically but kind of what you can sustain with no net kind of accumulation of that fatigue it sort of shows that bottom force that you can exert with your finger flexors I guess um and what we've seen is that yes people can often have quite a polarized thing so they can have like a high max max strength sort of drops off quickly in what you would expect that kind of more glycolytic zone to be but then when they level off that's at quite a high level Mm -hmm. and they can kind of keep that going so that wasn't me interestingly I was low strength low strength I could maintain it quite well in that sort of like first two minutes. And then I, I, I kind of fell off a cliff and my aerobic, uh, kind of, I don't know whether you'd call it your aerobic base, your critical force, which yeah. a number of factors play into, but let's call it kind of aerobic base. Mine was actually quite low, which is mm. interesting because I've done a lot of trad climbing in my background. You know, I wonder whether we're seeing a bit of a genetic element play out because you might think that I have, you know, you looked at my climbing history, you would, probably think that that could be quite well developed so it's Mm. interesting that actually in that scenario right obviously that is one it's seven three repeaters it's got a load of constraints but in that scenario it wasn't that good (laughs) yeah that's it well i mean muscle muscle fiber type distribution will play into Mm. into that and that's huge variation among individuals yeah yeah it's interesting what is is there a project that stands out to you that you have trained for most specifically in terms of like actually at home, because I guess a lot of your projects, like you said, you, you've probably gotten out on them quite a lot, but you have travelled for some where you might yeah. not get the time on. Have you, you know, gone a bit more like sort of nitty gritty specific in that, you know, grip types or all that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, there's been like border problems where, you know, it's like a, taking an undercut over your head. Like that's something I move, I tend to be quite weak on. I've done problems like that. And I remember... Um, when I, I had a trip booked for the like, for the, the uh, six months ahead to to go to Magic Wood and try practice of the wild, and the, the the move for me is like you go from a Gaston to another Gaston, and you've got to keep your chest really close into the wall, um, and so I say I, I, I'm a model of that. That was like a caricature of the real that really emphasized that you had to you had to do that. You had to rock over and keep the chest right in and stay really tight on that while you took the next cast on. So would that have been a, a strength effect or a technique effect or both or no effect? <laughs> I just don't know whether it really helped or not. Um I, I actually think it was probably just the general other training that I was doing that made more of a difference. I mean it's all it's all speculative, like how much does those specific things uh, actually make a difference to what you think it's a difference to or how much does it make you feel like you've prepared well and therefore you feel good (laughs) oh yeah 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 Yeah. completely that's why I think like when you see a split in those like very high level climbers 
yet they're all going out and climbing pretty well on their projects it kind of tells you that yeah it's it's probably their personal preference personally I have enjoyed like well I enjoy training for specific moves and just using them as a bit of a base to be creative and make up problems and so I think that just makes me enjoy my training but I have enjoyed using conditioning exercises to target muscle groups without the um climbing element because obviously you set a replica there's still a tech well there's a really high technical element so you know say you're like pulling into a gaston it's like what muscles are actually like involved in that movement and can you just train them in a really targeted way to strengthen them and yeah I've quite enjoyed that but um but like you said whether that's an enjoyment over you know (laughs) what what's sort of having the better part of the outcome I I don't really know Mm. and yeah and you know I actually was quite interested because you mentioned like if you get a project that diet still plays into that you know something that you spent a lot of time thinking about and you've you've sort of now for a number of years been on a keto diet probably with a variation of an amount of carbs and in carnivore that you've doing at the moment but when you say that diet will play into future projects or you still think about it what do you actually change in that scenario is is there still like a shift within your keto approach or yeah well I mean there's 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 lots of variations you can do even even if you take something as specific as a ketogenic diet some people think of it as being just like one thing but it's a a whole spectrum of possible diets so I mean just to think of an an obvious example is to vary it between um a keto diet that's very high in protein like you know 20 30 percent protein versus a keto diet which is actually quite a bit lower in protein and very high in fat um I mean, that that could have all sorts of um influences on your body composition like it's let, let's say you went on a, a much higher fat version of, of the diet um what would that what would that do to your your muscle mass would it would it stay the same would it drop um and and what implications would that have for the fuel availability that you that you have for your climbing i mean it's there may be some conversion of protein into glucose if you're on a high protein um, keto diet and that might affect you know how your glycogen stores for for training and it might actually have quite an important effect so there's still a lot of things to experiment there um and and i have experimented with those a, li- a little bit um and broadly I, I find that they don't seem to make all that much difference to me i just find that on on any ketogenic diet um that the by far and away the biggest effect for me is just that I'm, I'm a fair bit leaner like i'm a few kilograms maybe three to four kilograms leaner um, and i just sit at that that level and um, so that's like a, a a big advantage that kind of all the other things kind of pale in comparison um but the other the other advantages for me are still not insignificant you know like um very steady energy supply and good concentration. I feel like I recover well from my training. Um, but I, I keep playing with it to see if there's there's something else um, that would be different. I mean, because I've been doing it for a while, one, one change in my body that's happened a lot more slowly is actually that I've gained quite a lot of muscle. I'm definitely significantly more muscular than I was like 10 years ago. Um, but it, that that process, I think, I, well, subjective. I wasn't doing DEXA scans to confirm this, but um, 
subjectively, I feel like I, I st that started when I started doing the keto diet. And I did have a couple of DEXA scans and I had, I had one that was about a year apart and I'd gained a fair bit of muscle in that time. Um, and that I think was, is possibly been one of the disadvantages of the diet, <laughs> which might seem counterintuitive. Um, you know, a lot of sports nutrition is focused on um, gaining more muscle as quickly as possible and holding on to it at all costs. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that assumes that more muscle is always better and, and it, it, it really isn't for, for, it is for some climbers. If they're, again, it depends on where you are on the continuum. It's a bit like the body fat. Just if, if you're on the very low end, then for sure you need to do everything to try and get yourself into more of an anabolic state to put on some muscle because ultimately you need muscle tissue to actually, to actually be able to pull and generate force. But for a lot of um, people, well, maybe a lot, I don't know, a proportion of people, um, they have enough or maybe they even have a little bit too much. And then there's another layer, which is how the muscle is distributed on your body. You know, if you look at someone, like I'm just going to pick on a climber, let's say uh, Chris Sharma, for example, you know, someone that goes from the waist and they just go out like that and they have these huge bear-like arms, <laughs> massive forearms. It may be that if they do anything, any intervention that causes them to gain muscle, comparatively, they're going to be gaining a lot of it in the upper body. And so it may just it may just be an advantage straight away. But conversely, if someone tends to gain a lot of muscle in their legs, then it may have the opposite effect. And I think that I think that's having that effect in me. Like I do tend to have quite big muscular legs, in part because I also do, you know, I carry a lot of rucksacks of full of Chad gear up mountains. Um, so gaining a lot of muscle has not worked out that all that well for me. So that's one of the kind of remaining things in the diet I'd like to play with and, and just experiment. Do I feel better if I if I have less muscle? Could I even could I even lose some of it? Um, would that make, actually make me feel better? It might not. It might make me worse at climbing, but that's the kind of experiment I'm willing to run. <laughs> yeah, I think muscle mass is a really interesting one. And I have quite a lot of muscle mass. Um, mm -hmm. And in my legs, I did a lot of years of dancing in my upbringing and most likely a genetic element. Like no matter what I do, I don't think it's going anywhere probably. But it's always an interesting question because the fact that, and, and it'll be interesting to know what you think on this. So you have developed more muscle mass since being on the keto diet. Um, and I guess even if you didn't have a DEXA scan before you'd ever tried it, if you'd had them a year apart on the diet and you've, you've increased muscle mass um, a lot, then I, I guess it might have like played a significant role. But then if you use it, it's probably quite hard to lose it. You know, you, once you gain it, it's you can maintain a certain muscle mass. And if you use it, it might be quite apparent because it will stay or it will grow. So it's like maybe it's useful. And I know there's a lot of people think it's not useful on your legs, but it would be interesting. I don't know. You do walk around a lot. So if you get to the crag and your legs were really tired because they were not as well developed, maybe you would actually struggle on some of those trad climbs where you still need like lower body strength. Um, but have you played around, like, did you find when you go on now with the muscle mass you have, when you go on the lower protein, higher fat version, did that make any difference in muscle mass maintenance? Because I know that like from, you know, sort of classic sports, nutrition, like when people are looking to calorie restrict, they usually 
aim to go for a slightly higher or, or keep that good protein to, to try and maintain mass. So I, I don't know whether you feel a whether you still sort of um, on the keto do drop the calories towards maybe certain projects um, in order to drop any more and whether you notice it come off there or whether you notice any difference between the, the sort of higher fat version or higher protein. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I occasionally like, you know, one, literally once every few years, I would do a few weeks of just deliberately actually restricting my calories, even in the context of a keto diet, just to, you know, drop a little bit of it of extra body fat for a short period and then just come back up afterwards. Um, and, I, and, you know, just looking, looking at your body and um, not having continuous DEXAs all the time, which I, I just can't have access to actually ge- geographically as much as financially. Um, so I, I don't think that my um, measure of just like looking and thinking is, are my legs and arms bigger or smaller is all that sensitive. So, but subjectively, it doesn't feel like it makes a lot of difference. Um, and, you know, well, well, why is that? I mean, possibly one reason is um, in the context of, of a ketogenic diet where your general metabolism is, is running more, more on fat, you know, your RQ is lower, uh, your respiratory quotient's lower most of the time at rest and actually during a lot of your exercise. Um, so there's, there's going to be fewer times where you actually run out of glycogen, but there's a demand for glucose. That's been my, my experience. And, and, I, and I wonder if that um, there's actually, it means that there's less times where your body is running on empty it's wanting glucose and it's then it's starting to make glucose from muscle protein. Um, so I, I, although the ketogenic diet is not a particularly anabolic diet, um, the, uh, you know, muscle mass is determined both by the gains you make muscle protein synthesis, but also the balance of that and muscle protein breakdown. So it may not be the, the best way to, to gain, if you want to be a bodybuilder, a keto diet probably is probably not the, the best, um, but it may protect you against loss, especially mm. in, in sports where you're, you're constantly sailing close to the wind. You're, you're, you're trying to eat the, the minimum, if you like, <laughs> which a lot of athletes are. And also um, in the context of a, of a keto diet these days, I never, aside, like I say, from the very, very brief periods, I, I never tried to watch my food intake. I actually just, I actually had to switch my whole attitude to just eating. We're making sure I, I eat enough all the time and, and really feeling like I'm eating a lot. So I think there's just a general better availability of fuel. So I just think it's you're, you're entering that catabolic state where your body's drawing from, from muscle protein to make glucose less often. And so potentially that would be a reason why um, I feel like I at, at least hold on to muscle, um, even on a, a, a very high fat ketogenic diet. Um, and even in the context of restricted calories for brief periods. Yeah, I guess it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of people, it can be easy to overlook the fact that there's always constant turnover in our body. So protein mass gain is always actually a balance. It's like a, it's a net gain and there's yes. always break down and build up to consider so so yeah I mean you know I don't know the ins and outs of it but obviously if you do just actually have less of that breakdown then you might end up in this like slightly more like net protein mass you know 
gain. Um, yeah, which is which is interesting. Yeah, ketones them, themselves actually inhibit um, some of the genes and enzymes that uh, that regulate protein breakdown in, in muscle. So they, they, they are turning off the switch, which makes evolutionary sense. You know, the, the ketogenic diet um, is, in a sense, a, a program for dealing with fast the fasted state. Um, and so it makes sense that you're holding on to, to muscle in that state and the, the, the metabolic signaling reflects that. But one, one other important thing to say about um, keto diets and muscle and, and my own my own experience with it is that um, ever since actually going down this path several years ago, the, the one thing I'd, I think I do eat more protein in general, but especially the, the balance of that protein has shifted more towards animal protein. And potentially there's, there's a a quite a strong influence. It could even explain all the influence there for gaining muscle and holding on to it. That there's a difference in protein quality, um, and that just by eating more more animal source foods and you know quite a lot of animal protein, even when I make other changes in the diet, that stays relatively constant. That could explain the effect. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like that more kind of, um, I guess often people refer to it as like whole proteins, don't they? It's like got everything um, you need in there. And in terms of, because something I think is interesting is distribution of muscle mass, as you said. And actually, I think for some people that could feel more important than kind of the weight of muscle mass itself, A, because there's different muscles of different sizes that we use in climbing. um, And and also people might just actually a be able to influence it with training or b they might not be able to influence it with training like it might just be their their body and they might not be able to um and we've i've had a few different discussions with people about this and actually um someone um i know uh, well ollie i'm sure you won't mind me mentioning he notices he builds a lot of muscle mass around his trunk which makes him feel heavier you know maybe doing deadlift or something like that which then doesn't feel you know the most like valuable in his climbing or he doesn't feel enough of a gain in the climbing to maybe warrant doing that and he's like oh you know what actually maybe I don't really need to do heavy deadlift because my it makes my trunk heavy and but I don't get this massive gain in my climbing versus obviously like muscle mass on the shoulders or arms or in the forearms and and I actually remember you saying when you you mentioned about your elbow that you hadn't been doing as much maybe upper body you know maybe more that basic training um is that something you've thought about in terms of like your training and what muscles you choose to train for example in conditioning if you do do that sort of thing and I don't know whether the DEXA scan showed you where you'd gained the muscle mass such that you could actually like direct that a little bit yeah well I mean the the DEXA did show that I'd I'd gained muscle overall so you you do get a breakdown like in a limb by limb break like trunk um arms and, and legs and um you know, a, lot, a lot of it was in my legs. I can't remember where off the top of my head, but that seemed to to my eye to be dis- disproportionate, like, you know, very high. I mean, it would be anyway, just because legs are bigger than arms, but it just seemed like a, a lot. Uh, I, I didn't, I must say, look into the literature and see, like, well, what, what should the proportions be? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm not really too sure about that. Um, but, yeah, so it, 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 it did kind of make me make me think about that aspect i can relate to to what you were saying about um ollie but in the terms of fat mass because one of the things that was actually 
um, most clear from a, the DEXA scans I had and actually two separate um, uh, the, the scanning staff that were there, they, they both commented on it that the, the subcutaneous fat that I did have was very concentrated to my bum and my legs and that that was, um, it was more similar to a female distribution of, of body fat and, and slightly unusual for males so that my fat mass in my upper body was quite low um, well, it was like low air and would be expected. And I feel felt that when I lost fat mass on the keto diet, I feel it the, the, most strongly when um, I'm doing steep bouldering and I cut loose and have to put my feet back on. Like if I have to pull my whole core in and reach a distant foothold like off to the side, that just feels so strikingly more easy to do. Or if I do moves, do a move where one foothold away to the side and I expect that foot to come off and my body to swing out it just doesn't and you know you sort of I almost lose concentration when you do the move wow my foot stayed on it just felt my lower body just feels so much lighter <laughs> yeah so there is definitely an effect of you know feeling different um parts of your body as as being uh, more bulky and, and heavier and, and that does play into your climbing technique I mean you can adapt your climbing technique if, if you've ever climbed with a weight belt on I mean I used to climb a lot Years ago, I had a little weight belt that was um, two kilos. And, you know, so you, would, you wouldn't adjust the types of problems. You would still try and climb the same boulders. It just has a little bit of weight, but it just made your climbing style different. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. I had to be more aggressive to, to hit the holes. And I, it, was, it was kind of odd to me that I could actually get up most of the, the boulders that I was training on with the two kilos on. Um, but my, I, the, the strongest thing I noticed was that my climbing style just changed. <laughs> that's quite, I mean, that's quite interesting. I mean, there's a few things that you said there. A, about the distribution of um, the weight and where you actually feel it and the movements you feel it on is quite interesting. Um, <laughs> having that slightly more, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I guess people often call it a female fat pattern, which yes. is obviously more like breasts, kind of bum thighs. Um, which is quite interesting. Male fat pattern is usually a little bit more like around the middle. Um, and, you know, and, and I don't know. Yeah, it's like that must be something for them to point it out. They're like, oh, right, that's quite interesting. And that's an interesting thing that you learn. But then it's quite cool that you actually, with the keto diet, I guess, I mean, I don't know whether the subsequent DEXA scans you had showed, again, a sort of equal fat reduction across your body or whether you did lose it from those sites where you were carrying it more disproportionately I only asked because for example for me I, I have a female fat pattern um, and when I have lost weight I actually noticed that I don't seem to lose it as much from it's like those areas like my bum and thighs want to hold on to it more so interestingly yeah. when I actually trim down a little bit say summer and I'm I'm you know out doing walk-ins and you know whatever actually my mid middle like my sort of you know around my abs I guess um actually looks more I don't know, ripped I don't know whatever you'd call it like as it looks like that is where I've lost the fat and I've really held on to it in the areas mm -hmm. that would be associated with the female fat pattern and, and I don't know whether that's actually what you found or, or not at all because I guess I've always seen that as being like cool I've got that fat pattern for a reason that's really sort of kind of written into my body um and hasn't felt like yes. something's ever changed much yeah i think that 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 makes sense and um I, 
I think I just lost, as you say, uh, proportionally. So because there was more fat mass in my lower body, I lost more from my lower body. I didn't actually get the calculator out and drill down into the, the numbers from each DEXA scan and compare at that level of detail. But subjectively, that's what it feels like. Actually, um, uh, a climber who I was talking to about this recently in, in, in quite a lot of detail um, actually messaged me and, and, he, and he's, he, he was asking me, had I had multiple DEXA scans? And, and he just asked because he, he said that he, he was a little bit sceptical that, because um, I'd said that I'd had a DEXA scan and my body fat percentage was about 17.5%. And he, he said, I'm a bit sceptical that it really is that high because you you look like your upper body, you look like you're about 10% or 11%. And he basically didn't believe, didn't believe me. Um and, uh, and, and I was saying, yes, I have had multiple DEXA scans. And that was the one thing that they commented on was that the distribution was in the lower body. And it, it did make me think that um, if you're ever looking at other people and comparing, you know, body composition between people, then it's worth being mindful of that, that it, some of the things might not be that obvious. Yeah. And also, I think some people I can imagine on the surface of it, might think 17 just sounds quite high for a male athlete in in general um but most likely they haven't had DEXA scans themselves so they might be comparing it to some other method that they have like they either had done themselves or they know people who have and that might be done in a different way and and as such yield kind of different results like for example I know that I have had a few different methods and they come out pretty varying I've never had a DEXA scan but you know you can have like skin folds done and then that I think maybe they can be quite good but of course they depend on the person doing them and like the number of sites and like you know depend on loads of things or people use those kind of um electrical impedance kind of machines as it called and I think they can be super variable and they and really so I think I, I can imagine from the face that I remember hearing you say that it was 17 percent and just thinking regardless of what you look like that's actually just quite high for a male athlete um which i guess is why some why it's something you've been interested in yes Um, is it like in terms of the reason why i think muscle mass is quite an interesting thing to hear from you about and your perspective as well is because you know i i either work with or have chatted to a couple of you know older climbers just like getting it moving into their 40s i even consider it as like I'm early 30s, but I'm a female. I know that my estrogen really is going to be like dropping off from now until I like go through the menopause. And climbing yeah. is something that I want to continue to feel robust in and enjoy and you know feel like my body can be strong. So it's interesting because obviously a lot of people as they get into their 40s may be thinking about building muscle mass or maintaining it, um, mm. which you've obviously started to actually find easier <laughs> with the shift onto the keto <laughs> diet. Do you do much to try and build, to, to actively, consciously build muscle mass on your upper body, given that you have that mass on your lower body? You know, because I guess in climbing, like almost to kind of, it, it might give you an higher absolute mass, but in climbing, it might mean that you have more of that upper body strength to go along with the the, the muscle that you kind of have quite naturally got in your legs. Yeah, um, I, I mean... Yes and no. So yes, um, I obviously try to uh, build muscle mass in my upper body as in so much as it's as my upper body is going to get bigger. 
But I mean, I've been training for 25 years <laughs> and my forearms are really not getting any bigger. I don't, um, I, I, I don't think it's really feasible for me to, to, to get really, really big in my, in my upper body. I just don't seem to respond that much, a, a little bit, but not, not a huge amount. So uh, I would say that my, my, my strategy <clears throat> at the moment, which is, which, you know, it's focused primarily on climbing performance, actually above health and although health is a very important concern for me um i think it's important to be clear like what the priorities are if i was optimizing purely for health i don't know maybe i would do it slightly differently but i don't know i I think i have enough muscle mass to be to be healthy i don't think that's an issue for me i don't really think that if I want, if I put on another 10 pounds of muscle, that, that that would add too much. I think I'm already at a threshold where I have enough muscle where adding more is not going to give me that much added health benefit. So I'm probably quite happy where I am. But for climbing performance, um, I think I could stand actually to have a little bit less. Um, but there's a lot of things that, you know, I, I don't think that would necessarily apply to, to someone else, in part because of the muscle distribution that we that we talked about. Um, in part because of my my age and experience and my own other attributes like my I feel like my climbing technique is is quite well developed and I lean on that a lot in my climbing um, and so for every for every pound even of body mass drop I get a huge leverage from that because my climbing technique is quite well developed and my tactics as well um, Whereas for another climber, it might not be anywhere near that marked. So I, I, I really need to sort of to consider how to, to have a strategy about muscle mass. I need to stand back and look at myself, look all the attributes together and consider them all. Um, I think what's the best strategy. And as I say, for a different climber who has a different distribution of, of muscle in their body, then the strategy might actually be completely different and they, they really need to keep focusing on building as much upper body muscle mass as, as possible. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, I, I must, it's, a, it's a yet another thing that I'm kind of on the fence about. I don't really know what the best strategy is. I'm just making the, the best guess that I can from, you know, experimenting and basic understanding of physiology. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, like you said, it'll always be what's best for you. You might be like, I guess, really my question was for you like do you think building more upper body mass could help like your climbing but it might not because like you said you have different attributes and actually just that payoff between you know the the muscle mass and your performance isn't there whereas it's it I find it interesting I ask because personally I I do carry muscle mass like when I started training I've gained about I'm five kilos heavier than before I did any training and I started training off the back of a shoulder dislocation to build more muscle like I and and I saw a big increase in my climbing ability despite being five kilos heavier Mm -hmm. and interestingly I've I've also though I struggle with finger strength so you might think oh if you're a bit lighter you know because your fingers are this quite small you know muscle group there's limiting factor in climbing I think often people think about being lighter as things being easier on their fingers um yeah. which is why it's interesting about your cut loose you know you're actually like sort of the lower body and getting getting your feet on um but my fingers despite years and years of climbing I mean I hang on a fingerboard with like two arms plus 10 kilos 
which, mm-hmm. you know, for the level I've climbed, like maybe 8C and climbed for a lot of years, I'm 60 kilos. So that's only like 120. It's not super developed. I've got friends who can walk up to a fingerboard and hang with more than that. So you have to think like, what am I using when I climb? Mm. And I might be using that muscle mass, right? So I don't want to lose it. So I just, I just think it's interesting. And um, it's actually just quite interesting to know whether within your keto spectrum, you feel like you've been able to affect that. But it, it sort of sounds like, no, it sounds like you gain the muscle mass. And actually now maybe you're using it, you know, so you're, you, you, you won't lose it. But um, mm. I also wonder, like, I mean, it's, it's totally hard to know. I know when you went on keto, one of the really great things was that you could eat, you know, more fully or, you know, to your heart's content and you were restricting on a mixed diet. And I wonder if your muscle mass development was just actually impacted a bit by that. You know, I mean, most people when they are restricting on, well, on any diet really, but I guess on your classical diet of, you know, uh, with carbohydrates as well, muscle mass development is one of the things that suffers so maybe now you're actually seeing a more realistic sort of expression of what your you know of what your body would be yeah that's right i think there's, there's prob- probably two major things like one is like um eating a diet that ensures that you've got good steady energy availability to respond to training and recover and, and rebuild tissue um but also at the same time an improvement in food quality an improvement in diet quality so there's there's both the the macros there particularly particularly protein um and and energy in general not just carbohydrate but just energy in general um and also all the the micronutrients um and and you know better forms of the the, the micronutrients that are they are better absorbed so a general improvement in diet quality it's just really kind of win 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 so you have mm. energy availability plus nutrient availability <laughs> um and, and 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 having that consistently um so there's not really times where uh, you're going to be losing so much like you know drawing back from that that, that tissue i mean i, I actually did a, a really fun experiment um in 2019 where i, I thought i i just wanted to see if i could actually uh, design a, a diet to actually try and lose some leg muscle um so and I did it with almost the opposite strategy of 80% carbohydrate, um, very low protein and very low fat, um, almost like a completely kind of plant-based diet, very high in starch, very low in fat. Um, and I did that for about, I think about two or three months or something like that. And it was it was a really interesting experiment for me. I, I, I did lose um, fat and muscle, I'm pretty sure. But the, the muscle loss was temporary. It just came it came right back. And actually the fat mass did as well. Um, and I felt good when I was going down the way. I was getting lighter and, and you know, I climbed, I climbed well for a period. But it's funny, like, when I got to the, the bottom, the kind of low weight, I felt good for a very brief period and then felt rubbish. And I also felt really tweaky, like I was getting injuries all the time, like little minor tweaks, like, finger and elbow shoulder just everything just I just didn't feel like I could really tolerate much training um and and after that you know I, I sort of regained weight but I felt like I'd I'd, I'd lost strength like I just mm. I, I noticed it especially like in one arm you know I'm very you have 
all of his climbers these days are very sensitive to basic measures like what you can do on a fingerboard and what you can do with a, a one-arm pull. Um, and I lost my one-arm pull strength quite a lot and it took a long time to kind of claw it back. I almost feel like, have I even fully clawed it back? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so that, that, that was a, a fun experiment. The other interesting thing about that experiment was, although it was calorie restricted, it was 80% carb, but I was in my own ketosis almost the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that goes, um, I think you've explained that really nicely somewhere. Maybe it's on the video. Sort of yeah, about video, yeah. How, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, anyone should go and like watch that for your explanation of, I guess, just like energy usage in the body as a whole. And what does it mean yeah. to be in ketosis via energy expenditure? I guess, you know, just by playing with that equation I won't say basic equation because obviously it goes way beyond that but it's an interesting way to think about it rather than just thinking that you don't have enough carbs to supply yeah. that energy interestingly so like everything you just said there sounds to me and you know I'm probably just putting I might just be putting a biased lens on it but it's obviously a super broad syndrome term now the whole like relative energy deficiency in sport but you know losing weight relatively quickly niggles and tweaks and that kind of deficit for quite a long time as well as rebounding the weight quite quickly all all sounds a bit like um what people experience when they when they do have that red s and obviously there's a range of time scales here but i i mean i have no idea whether you know anything about this but is there anything that shows that calorie restriction with carbs is any different for that hormonal um, response than calorie restriction on a keto diet, or am I? I, I don't know. Um, there's really not research that's sensitive enough. Uh, I don't. I don't think that um, you have to look at people's hormones. I guess essentially as they yeah. as they were restricting on the two different diets, but just because you you obviously made that shift back to the mm -hmm. carb based diet, I didn't know whether that whether you felt that if you'd actually done the same amount of calorie restriction on the keto, whether you feel you would have got the same. Oh, yeah, no, that I, kind of like that. A, I mean, I had, I, had done that, I had done that in the past and, and uh, how I actually felt and how my body responded was really different. Um, mm. Like I had done a calorie restricted keto diet in 2016. Um, and I, I, that's at that time, that was when I felt like I was actually gaining muscle while on, on a, a bit of calorie-restricted keto diet and losing fat and just feeling really good and still feeling like I had a lot of energy, still feeling like I wanted to train, I felt good when I was training, I felt like I recovered well, and it, it all just felt like it was working. But the opposite approach of that um, high-carbohydrate, I mean, this might, might be partly an individual aspect, but it was while I was doing it, although I was actually dropping body fat, and and muscle as well um i felt terrible the whole time like i had like huge mood swings and um sometimes i'd, I'd go into my board and warm up and just be like, i just can't i just mm. can't train and just, just forget it and it, oh, it needed like you know, an extra rest day yeah so, yeah and i mean i that sort of experience you've had is echoed in other people i speak to and i guess i it's total speculation maybe someone will listen and do this experiment and actually monitor hormone levels like you know the cortisol and testosterone and all that but I I think your hormones I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I'm right in saying this have like a, a 
fat base like as in like they're they're made from fats like I guess I know in women like you know your estrogen can be made in like fat cells and uh, you know I think they are you know rather than maybe being more of that like carbohydrate based thing you know in terms of like taking things into our body to be able to make mm. hormones I think I think fats are, are important probably among lots of other things and I have no idea whether that could like you know influence that sort of different reaction to um yeah like a that that kind of well, I don't know experience of some of the symptoms of what they call red s on a calorie restriction on 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 different diets with that different like sort of balance of the macros who knows <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean because the, the, my aim with that with the diet was to keep myself out of ketosis that that was the mm. kind of point um because if you enter that state of ketosis, that is the that really is the program for fasting to protect your, your body um, from the 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 catabol- the worst of the catabolic effects of fasting, and, and to just make sure that fuel is used efficiently and that you're drawing from fat stores primarily. That is what they're there for. And so my goal with that that diet was to do the opposite: calorie restriction plus lots of carbohydrate to keep filling the liver with with glycogen and trying to cancel that signal for ketosis um, so that the the energy deficit would be met from from muscle and it would draw from muscle protein to make to make glucose because you're you're continually reminding your body that it should be running on glucose um, and yeah so I think it, it sort of broadly worked but I think the 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 consequence that came along with it um i mean uh, yeah it was a it was a great experiment i'm glad i'm i glad i I did it and um i probably probably won't do it again (laughs) yeah yeah and and it's interesting isn't it for people to be aware of and think about the aftermath of experiments in terms of length of time like i guess i see it's a lot of people with over overtraining overreaching i don't, don't know whatever you want to call it but i guess actually going through I don't know, yeah, red S, getting that hormonal um, shift that you get from that low energy availability, done whichever way, like I guess often for climbers through probably a mixture of not enough intake, but also that energy expenditure. You don't just bounce back from that. Like mm-hmm. I guess hormones are a slow, slower response to our environment. I mean, and, yeah. Yeah. and so it's it's interesting to to just understand that and also to hear from you that it did take a while and yeah. I guess it's interesting because you're obviously quite interested and willing to take that risk in experiment. But when you've done things like that, and I don't know if there's any other scenarios where actually it's maybe taken a while, you know, to be like, oh, yeah, this, this, wow, this hasn't worked. But now I just want to, like, get back to whatever is working to me and it's not instant. Is there any thought? Are you, are you like frustrated in that scenario or are you just like oh well right cool that's that just didn't work no because no, no, i mean I, I, doing these experiments are like you know uh, in any aspect of training i'm doing it because i don't know what will happen and there's one way to find out so then i find out i've all you always learn something in the process and and then you can use that in the future to to gauge your decisions in, in the future and um, but also i suppose i'm um it, 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 if i step back and think well um I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm interested in climbing and training and I want to push my own performance, but I'm also just interested in sports science as a, as a kind of end in itself. And so the curiosity of like, well, what would happen if you did that? And it's like, well, I can wait my whole lifetime till someone r- runs a study and that will almost certainly never happen. Or I can just try it tomorrow and just 
see how my body responds and, and it's just a fun experiment even if the result is actually negative for performance and it, you know it was actually good in perform- performance in the short term mm. um, so I did that in 2019 then like the autumn of 2019 and I would say for the whole of 2020 I didn't feel very good <laughs> whoa yeah. that's yeah that's like quite a long like run out of time afterwards mm. yeah oh, that's felt- interesting yeah, was, felt- it, was it worth it for the short for the short term <laughs> did you hey, yeah, did you well, like climb a given project you know did you did. were you like okay cool you were like oh I've done it for this thing and actually it did work for that but I probably won't do it again <laughs> because it's not worth the uh the time afterwards yeah no I wanted to to um to climb uh, a 90 of that Malcolm Smith did the first center called hunger mm. um, oh yes I remember that one yeah. and so yeah I, I sort of timed it the preparation so that I would be ready for doing that and I did that and then I also did um an E10 trad project just on a mountain just up the road from me um, and that that was a really hard piece of climbing like and bold as well and I spent a lot of time thinking I'm not I'm just not good enough to do this it's too hard and dangerous and and so I got both of those projects done so that was great it worked in the short term yeah yeah that's cool is it interestingly like you mentioned the um uh, trad route there and I know we've we've chatted a bit about kind of bold climbing where you want to be more focused and you have mentioned with the keto that among lots of other things your concentration and thing like that feels improved mm-hmm. is that anything you notice in those sorts of climbs where you're like oh actually like it's maybe that's not a longer term maybe that's like con- not con- what you mean by concentration but are you like oh yeah I feel actually like I'm more focused throughout this whole day on this like quite mentally like taxing climb. I did know I did notice a big difference, but not like that. So um, I, I do. I mean, I had read that before I, I tried the ketogenic diet that people said, "Oh, I feel like I've got better mental clarity and concentration." I just didn't believe it. I just thought that's like that's just you know people feel good because they're doing something different. But that's that I did experience that, and I did feel that I could concentrate. But it was more, um, you know, sitting at the computer trying to focus on writing something I felt like I could focus better in my climbing um in that sense I didn't notice any difference Mm -hmm. but there was another aspect of mental function or mental health that um would had a big effect so um like I I I had quite low mood maybe we'd call it mild depression although a doctor never diagnosed that for me but like sort of self-diagnosing that in myself um I feel like I had mild moderate depression most of my adult life and, and that that just cleared up in, in a month and felt really quite different in my whole outlook, the way I functioned uh, mentally. Um, but actually, it had some, that, that obviously has some massive upsides. But actually, from a climbing performance, it was a little bit more complicated than that because, you know, obviously, um, you know, mental tactics are such a huge part of rock climbing, any sport in general, rock climbing in general but also um, like hard, bold rock climbing. And I had a strategy that really I'd honed in over 20 years, which actually turned low mood to my advantage. I used to um, like kind of beat myself up quite quite hard mentally um, to push myself. And that worked really well for me. And I could, I could no longer use that same tactic. I just didn't feel the same way about myself. And so I had a much more even mood and view about um, what what kind of mattered in, in, in my life, if you like. It's very hard to put into words, but I just had to kind of 
rewrite my mental tactics from scratch because <laughs> I just felt yeah. different. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was actually literally going to ask you that question. And it's funny because I was going to put in front of it, you know, if this is it's quite personal, then I I totally get it if you don't want to talk about it. But because what I was going to ask is that I see across like people I know, people I don't know, but you read about their achievements. In some higher end of climbing, you actually see a, I don't know, you call it a correlation, but I see some darkness in people I get whatever you want to call it as quite a driver especially for some people that I know who do a lot of bold things but even just that drive and that determination but it is coming from us quite like um they put themselves down you know it's it's not coming from this place of oh wow I'm super happy and content in my life and I think you see this in loads of sports people you know, and, yeah, and, and lots of sports people, they, they speak out about it. And actually, they you, you sort of can look on the face of it and be like, gosh, look at all this achievement. People must be so satisfied and, and happy. And, you know, that's just not always the case. And a lot yeah. of people actually find something in climbing that um, helps them direct that. And, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to go through that shift, amazing shift to go through. Like, of course, it's like the positive side to be on to suddenly um, have found this way to actually um, improve your mood. But it, I can totally see that it would come with having to actually take a look at what motivates you and how you funnel those different emotions like yeah. into your climbing. Um, you used the word satisfied, which was really interesting. So. Um, I always think of like uh, athletic performance is like it, it requires a state of extreme dissatisfaction in order to do all the things you need to do to to push beyond your comfort zone to go to the next level. So I always think of it uh, uh, almost like a requirement for any successful athlete is to be able to, to sustain a state of impatience and dissatisfaction with with where they are today, basically forever. Yeah, and, I mean, people talk and, about being perfectionists, don't they? And and what they sort of are often really saying is what they are doing or what they are is not good enough. Yeah. And so it's always a push to strive to be the next version of themselves or or whatever. Um, but I think for happiness, it's also very. It, I think there's a balance, which which it will be interesting to see. I I you know I imagine you have found this between being like happier and, and being a bit more satisfied with what you do whilst keeping that high expectation of yourself and that wanting to drive to the next thing um so yeah it's interesting to hear about that shift for you mm, yeah and because uh, I used to um l- look at the kind of whole positive thinking movement years ago with quite a lot of disdain and um I used to just think well perhaps that that, that approach of uh, feeling positive feeling like you know I'm going to go on this trip and I know I can do I can do this route and just convincing yourself that you can but I always felt that that just had the opposite effect for me and that that whole approach just didn't really work and um and actually now I feel like I do think more like that and it, it actually does work so it, it may be a context specific thing it's like if your background mental state supports it then you could use quite a positive strategy mentally for approaching your performance. 
Um, but if, if, if not, then, you know, the negative strategy can actually be highly effective. Uh, I mean, I always remember reading an um, uh, autobiography by a, a, a cyclist, Graham Aubrey, who's another Scot, Scot. And um, I didn't really know that much about him, but um, I learned in his book that he had really, really severe uh, depression. Like, yeah, it was amazing. He actually survived through his, through his athletic career. Um, but I remember him just saying, like, he just got so negative that he just got into this state where he, he saw himself like a like a, a trapped or caged animal that was being attacked, you know, by this terrible mental um, state that he was in. And he, and he just used, used that to kind of explode into his, his sport performance. And I remember like reading that, I'd never thought about it like that before, but thinking, well, not in the same level, but that's how I feel like I, I approach climbs sometimes. I, I don't anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, probably just with that, shift you you learn a new way and you're like oh right I can actually see how this might have worked for you know um other yeah other people in the past and I think like mental health in climbing is an interesting one in in general for everyone Um, Mm. and I know that you did um kind of share some of your experiences about using the keto diet and and just experiencing this you know I assume slight unexpected change like in your mood did you go did you go and look into it and is there anything that actually um supports that in a clinical setting like is this because obviously I mean depression is and anxiety is a massive problem in well I mean in the UK but I'm sure in other places as well is this something that is being used in that wider context um and did you receive a lot of um, communications from people when you did share this, like to the climbing community as well. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot of things to go out there. So um, I don't think that that's that um, like diet interventions are widely used. You know, like what they would call nutritional psychiatry. <laughs> it's not it's not wide, widely used uh, yet in mainstream practice. Mm-hmm. Although there definitely are some psychiatrists who who do use it. Um, there is. I think it is plausible that there is an effect um, from 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 different aspects of diet interventions. Like, for, for example, there are actually several trials showing that creatine supplementation improves depressive symptoms. Creatine is important important for delivering fuel in brain cells as well as it is in muscle. Um, with the with the ketogenic diet, there's there's different aspects. So one is that um, ketones themselves are are a fuel for the brain um so there is evidence that they they actually impact a pretty wide range of neurological conditions the very first one you know research from a century ago uh, was for treating epilepsy and mm. um, where there's an energy crisis in, in neurons where they're they're firing and they don't have enough energy and that's when you have the seizures and the ketones can can rescue that function and and, re- and prevent some of the the damage associated and actually lower the seizures um and but then there, since then there's just more in the last 10 years there's a lot of research in many neurological conditions so broadly that may be just because the ketones are, are providing an alternative fuel source so there's a more steady energy supply for for the brain and therefore brain function is just better and um, there's also the other layer which is depression is increasingly thought to be uh, an inflammatory process it's brain inflammation 
uh, you know, excessive activity of the immune system in the brain. And uh, ketones themselves have direct effects on, um, how can I put it, sort of um, clusters of or, or cascades of, of inflammatory function where um, the, the activity of a set of genes is turned on that then has a big downstream consequence for general levels of, of inflammation in the brain and in the, in the body more widely. Um, but those things are at a very early stage of, of research. But there is plausibility there that you would, you know, you would see an effect. And I think that the research showing some promise in that, that wide spectrum of neurological diseases sort of underpins that, that this is a plausible thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah, you, you asked as well about um, did other other people um, share that they had a similar effect? And yes, mm, I had yeah. Any messages uh, from 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 other people who'd seen that video in climbing and outside, who who said they had um, either a modest positive effect, but often it was quite a dramatic. I mean, maybe people are more likely to get in touch if they had a a dramatic effect. But yes, many many people did, and it sounds like it has actually been a life changer for for quite a lot of people um which is interesting and and, and a lot of them were, were like me like they they said oh, i was i was kind of skeptical but i just i just heard a story of someone else trying it and i thought well i'll, I'll try it if it doesn't work i'll just go back to what i was doing um mm. and it worked well like obviously you've um, you shared that experience um and you know you get to sort of um, communicate with different people who've had either a similar experience or maybe not which is great prior to starting that diet and feeling that change in mood had you tried anything else or like spoken about mental health or did you almost not realize it as much until you went through the change and and you're actually just harnessing it in your climbing or did were did you actually try anything else like to yeah you know a, a bit of both uh, so in, in one sense um uh having having like low low mood disappear um you experience for the first time how you can actually feel <laughs> and i didn't really you know, you just have no way of knowing what what you sh- you should be able to feel like, or or how how much better you you can feel. Um, so that that that's always going to be surprising because you, you know you, you, you no one can no one can really put that into words or explain like um, this is what normal function should be like. <laughs> um, uh, so Which, it's kind of a shame, isn't it? Because in order to try and like. You know, I think there's probably a lot of people who maybe could feel better or, you know, there is a feeling that their mood or, or well-being isn't where it should be. But without mm. people talking about it, obviously it is great to talk about it on the other side. But I think sometimes having that explanation of like, but this is how I feel now, it, it helps give that spectrum. Otherwise, I think people sometimes you never know, do you? Like, would I yeah. feel way way happier if I did a key today obviously I don't know and I only really know how I feel now so yeah, right. yeah. it's always interesting yeah. so, to yeah, like you, know, you have to experiment mm. yeah and um uh I, I did though you asked about um having other other things that I already did other tactics mm. to try and sort of uh, self-medicate if you like and and I and I did lean very heavily on just time in the outdoors just mm. being outside in mountains and um that that really helped um, 
more some types of climbing more than others. I find that um, going out, trying trad projects on my own, or or going out bouldering on my own was particularly good, and um, mm-hmm. especially um, I know it's partly where where I live. You know, I was always like I, ne- I never really see other people at the crag. I'm always just going out to places that either actually no one's climbed before and it's a new place, or it's just very very quiet. So just going out in solitude and having long relaxing days, either climbing by myself or wandering around the hills and 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 looking for things like those those were all really really helpful but that that was I don't know if I really had other tactics that I went on maybe just general general stability in, in, in life I would say um, and having you know having things kind of dialed so that you're not you don't have other external stresses that just add to your your problems so solving trying to solve basic problems in life like you know um how am I going to pay the mortgage next month? Or that 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 kind of that kind of things. Having all those things relatively sorted means you have some space to deal with other things. Yeah. Yeah, I actually read a, a book recently, just like I mean, quite just a kind of entertaining, easy read called "A Year of Living Danishly," but it looks mm-hmm. at a journalist moved there and looks at Danish culture and because they rank very highly as on the happiness scale I guess um yeah. you know and a big part of what the journalist sort of talks about and looks into is their welfare system essentially their stable you know culture where like you know there's loads of support from the government you know that if you want to change jobs or like you know just this whole like massive like web of of sort of social security basically uh, and how that plays into happiness um I think it's always interesting to talk about and I think there has been a movement in climbing and in general for people to consider their mental health you know and to hopefully talk to other people about it be able to experiment with things that might help um mm. yeah something that I've I think you actually shared a paper on it though I don't think it was something you enjoyed was the outdoor swimming <laughs> which, yeah. which yeah which I have found really useful like really good mm-hmm. um but yeah it, it is obviously cold so it's not everyone's cup of tea but it's it's interesting that if that isn't someone's cup of tea or whatever nutrition is something that maybe they could try or experiment with yeah yeah absolutely I, I think there's, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of potential there I, and I know like people get worried about like um trying things where you don't really know what you're doing um I mean like maybe especially if you're mo- if you are you know if your well-being is suffering or you feel depression the fear like that that's that's yeah. quite like a big um step to take I know because you can always make things worse and um with with anything you do uh, you have to sort of accept that that's a possibility mm-hmm. and I don't know I mean I, I really struggle with this um, in discussions about um, doing it doing anything I mean I, I, I was thinking about this in a completely different context like um, uh, rope solo self-dealing and the dangers or safety associated with that but it's just it's the same principle where I just feel like um, I want to I want to live my life well there's a lot of things that are, are are either unknown or I'm going to need to try in order to learn how to master it. And I'm going to need to, to take, take the risk that it might go badly in order to find out anything that might go well. And I just, I, I, I just don't have a problem personally um, with, with just accepting that and, and getting on with it. Um, 
but at the same time, I, you know, you do see that people do try things and they do make themselves a, a lot worse. Um, I mean, I've also had a lot of people um, contact me saying that um, they have changed their diet and and given them not necessarily given themselves, but it's certainly associated with really severe worsening in their their mental state um and that they've they then made subsequent changes and and managed to rescue that so yeah it can it, it can go badly and I, all you all you can really do i think is try to read this the scientific literature where you can <laughs> you know if you if you have an understand a basic understanding of of science and and how to read a paper then you're just so much better equipped to get closer to good decisions. And I, I know that seems like a tall order for a lot of people. They're like, oh, I just don't know where to start. I just, I just don't have a better option. Well, that's why you come in. You can just like keep making YouTube videos that people can go to. I, but, yeah, but people, <laughs> shouldn't, people shouldn't trust one guy on the internet. <laughs> oh no, it was you know, a bit of a joke. But, yeah. but, yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. it's one thread of many. I think it's, I, th- I think when it comes to well well intervention for anything but I guess if we're talking about mental health I know that one of the things that you highlighted when you have talked about the ketogenic diet is that some people don't realize that they're also just not meeting their calorie needs yeah. so obviously you could make that switch and then not actually meet your calorie needs and of course that could well that could make loads of things worse but I think when it comes to well-being and mental health something that I personally, like, say, if I was going to make this change, would struggle with, and it may totally outweigh any positive effect, is the social element of food. You know, so if you decide to make a change in diet that is, um, you know, towards towards keto and you really want to stick with that, there's enjoying dinner with your partner, with your friends, there's going out. There's, I can see there's totally, like, a, well, a super long list of social implications that that may impact your well-being. Um, so I so I guess that would be always be something to consider. And something I thought was interesting that you said was that you sort of laid out the diet first and thought, can I do this? Is is yeah. this something I can do? You don't just sort of think, oh great, I'm just going to try this thing and I'm going to change it. And so so that might be if if people are thinking, okay, maybe I don't have loads of time to delve into every bit of literature actually going the other way and being like well when I look at my life and the idea of the intervention I'm thinking of making does that even make sense it's like with training Mm -hmm. being like looking at your week and being like how much time do I have before Mm -hmm. you say I want to do four max hang sessions three pull-up sessions four boulderings you know before you think what you want to do you actually look at your capacity to do any any yeah, it's you that's going to have to live this life and mm-hmm. you know you're, you're hopefully and, and ultimately you're you're hopefully doing it to improve your life so it should it should be better and I just think a bit of time to um to just think, think it think it through to think how am I going to make this work because mm-hmm. I mean with, with with diet diet intervention adherence is the absolute crux of all of it it's like making it making it work and making it sustainable because mm-hmm. you know you do have to keep doing it in, in order to keep getting results and the same same with training uh, so yeah. I mean you must have this all the time working with coaching clients and in, in climbing where y- you know you know you both know what you want where you want to get to like what activities you want to do but it can come down into quite 
peripheral things like you know, like do you really need to do your job that way do you really even need to do that job <laughs> like yeah yeah and there's yeah. always multiple ways to get any one destination so yeah. it's and it, and it definitely I think what almost comes first is thinking okay what will this person do like you said with with diet adherence to everything with training adherence is everything and and it's funny I have this conversation with people a lot where they maybe they're not enjoying a certain exercise or whatever and it's like okay let's see if there's a different way to do that do that thing because and they're like oh no 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 just I I will do it I will do it and I'm like look I'm not just kind of you know bowing to your enjoyment it's because it is really important that is why I can check and because I know there's multiple ways to get to a destination actually enjoying it believing the thing you're doing is good for you you know all of those things play Mm. into the very real physical outcome of application um so so yeah I think understanding that as a real general approach to everything is is you know a good place to start yeah one one tricky thing is like um when people's beliefs about about any aspect of training and performance and diet's a big one as well, um, are not actually rational, but they work. <laughs> so <laughs> tough might have an ideology that I, I'm doing if I just do this, then you know it's going to solve everything. And that and it may be completely rubbish, that may be rubbish, but it allows them to adhere to what they're trying to do and therefore it, it does have a good effect. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. What, what do you do about that? Do, 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 do you say no, no, no? That's that's not right. Like you know, this aspect of what you're doing is not working because of why you think it's working. <laughs> or do yeah, you, you, you don't want to undermine that and sort yeah, of like shatter that belief yeah. at all. But but I think what I also see, and I imagine you've come into contact with, is that people are doing something, and from a objective perspective, looking in, you're like, I'm not sure that is actually just even working the best for you. And I think it would be good yeah. to try something else. And so then it's like you said, with anything, I mean, not necessarily going where looking at the literature, obviously, if you're working with a coach, it's for that understanding to be super clear and that like education. And like you said, people really, if you go and educate yourself on something and the unknowns diminish a bit, you've got loads of benefits. Obviously, you might do a better job with the intervention because you understand what you're doing. But by reducing the unknowns and building that belief, uh, belief or just understanding of why something would work, I think that that is, yeah, also really powerful and kind of goes for anything. And Mm -hmm. something I'm actually, we've talked a lot about keto and we've kind of given it that label. And, you know, obviously you talked about the numerous like positive experiences or outcomes you've had. But I know that at the moment you're on a carnivore diet and that you have experimented with that in the past. And I'm just interesting, interested in why that particular shift was something you went for. Was it something that you read about? And, um, you know, you talk quite a lot about research on the keto diet. Is there an equal amount on the carnivore diet or like where did you hear about that first? Because I think when I heard about it from you or like had seen stuff from you on it, that was the first time I'd heard about it as a diet. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first time I heard that there were people out there in the world who only ate meat. Um <laughs> And like someone was giving a lecture and they were discussing that. And I just thought like, oh, I've really heard it all now. That's just ridiculous. Um, and, and it took me a long time to, to shift from that that view where it's like, like I, I know people will like get keen on like, oh, if I'm going to exclude carbs 
why don't I just exclude all carbs and make it like zero and just go too far with everything, you know? And this surely is the embodiment of that extreme where, you know, it's just taking it to the ridiculous level. Um, and and it definitely, uh, well, there, there, I mean, there, there, are, there have been a couple of bits of scientific literature, but we're talking about like you can count the papers on one hand in a century. So it's not well studied in, a, in modern humans as an approach. So it's kind of probably fair to say it's leaving behind the science and going firmly into anecdote land where you have people who've, who've gone from well, all sorts of diets. But interestingly, from a keto diet that has plant and animal foods and then going to a carnivore diet of only animal foods, maybe even just only, only meat, and having further benefits on top. And I, I think if people were doing the classic thing of going from a Western a Western diet and then going to a carnivore diet and seeing improvement, I'd be a bit less interested in those anecdotes. But because those people are, are already coming from um, really paying a lot of attention to diet and experimenting with different things, and then they go from a diet they've already refined to something else, and they get a further improvement, then that makes those anecdotes a little bit more interesting. Um, you'd expect, no. like, a, it's sort of like the law of minimal gains. Like, you, if you heard about someone do, you know, it, it, because they're already further along that line, you'd actually be quite yeah. surprised for them to see a big outcome of making yeah. that sort of shift. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that, so I was vaguely interested in those anecdotes, not to a degree that I wanted to actually try it myself, but I was still like, Hmm, that's that's curious, and I, I would follow those people and 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 um, what they said about their experiences. Um, but one particular thing that was relevant to me is I've had really bad eczema all my life, like really bad skin condition. Um, people don't see it because it just affected my feet. I did have it on my hands when I was a kid, and um, but in my feet it was really bad. I mean, I went through periods as a kid where I was in hospital, I couldn't walk. And I, I, it was just daily pain, like every day from when I was a baby, um, broken skin, bleeding, just not, not, not fun. <laughs> um, and I always wonder, I mean, I just assumed that, that I would live with that for life. Um, my dad lived with it for, for life and my sister as well. And um, so I, I never really considered that there'd be a way out of it. But when I was doing experiments with fasting, like prolonged fasting, um, on the second day of prolonged fasting, my eczema and my feet just disappeared. And that was like magic. You know, that was just like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so, I mean, I had done a little bit of elimination diets as a kid, and they just they didn't really work. Um, but so eliminating everything worked. But that's <laughs> so then, then you're starting from sort of like a blank slate. Okay, let's add one food oh, yeah, in but one at, least, at, at least, time. you know, oh. Yeah, so at least I could actually say, right, well, there's definitely something diet-related going on here. Um, and I didn't really think much more about that. I was like, well, I don't, I don't really know how to proceed to, like, how can I manage to find a way to eat without, well, I'm going to talk, well, maybe I could do a, a carnivore elimination diet to see if that works, but it was only a kind of vague idea in my mind. Um, but I did, did eventually think I should just try that for, for a month just to see, pure curiosity, didn't really expect anything but when I tried it the first time that was in 2018 second day eczema gone 
<laughs> and that that was really kind of magical and it, and it just stayed away for the duration I did the diet which was about six weeks and then it came right back when I introduced um plant foods kind of not not in a very strict way but I was kind of staggering them in and I don't eat a huge variety of foods so we're not talking about like I added back 30 different foods so I have no idea which ones like you know I added back like leafy greens and you know that was enough <laughs> wow I mean that um, is so, fascinating isn't it when you think of I mean I guess I, I do not know much about food intolerances but there's like these classic ones that people seem to talk about I, I don't know how substantiated it is but you know it's often actually things like milk or you know gluten yeah. or you know a, a number of things you don't often think of leafy greens <laughs> as being like this really um I don't know you call it like I don't know I, I just don't think about them much when I think about something like eczema or kind of yeah an adverse kind of reaction to a food it's quite interesting yeah that's right yeah so uh, that, that was an interesting experiment and I thought I would I would do it I'd do it again um and then I, I was still was doing fasting as well uh, that was a, sort of another thing I, I, I liked experimenting with and um I could talk about that for ages as well. But when the second time I'd done a, a seven-day prolonged fast, just water, um, again, the eczema disappeared. But then after that fast, it came back, but only on one foot. <laughs> and I have absolutely no idea why. I can't explain it. I have no way to even start to explain that. Um, but it was great. It was a good result. And so there was always the thing, well, if it can disappear permanently on one foot, Maybe it could disappear on the other foot. So then I did an, another carnivore experiment, six weeks again, just animal foods. Um, and I was eating dairy and eggs. So meat, dairy and eggs, um, but nothing else. Um, and I, the eczema disappeared on the other foot and didn't come back. So I had most of the last year with none for the first time in my life, which is a, a huge result for me. Absolutely game changer um, like you know, I, I was think, I was trying to think of like how much if I could like pay a bill to an to eczema bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how much would I pay for that? And yeah, I mean, I would I would really work very very hard to to have that result. Um, and so but, now it's not come it's it's not come back now. Well, well, in the in the past sort of the the second half of twenty twenty one last year, I did return to eating. Um, a more mixed diet with more carbs and gradually a little patch just appeared on the sole of one of my feet just very small not not like a big deal not like it was giving me a lot of pain but still just it's still annoying but just to see it there again and I was like well let, let's just try another round of the carnivore diet and see if it, if it went away so that was like the the primary reason that um, I was doing each time um, and I, I'm just but beyond that, I just also wanted to see how I feel like, will I get scurvy? <laughs> you know, like, will, will I feel really bad? What will my, what will happen to my, my lipids? Like, will they go completely haywire? Um, will there be any negative effect? Because, I mean, a huge discussion point in sports nutrition and public awareness in general is the idea that a plant-based diet is healthier. And actually, like, so much of nutrition policy around the world and that actually almost environmental policy hinges on that that one view that um, eating meat especially red meat is actually bad for your health and that if we reduce it it's a win-win all round for 
health and for environment and for ethics. So if you if you assume that that's correct, then you know I can see why people arrive at all of the, <laughs> this whole swathe of policy that's based around that. Uh, but if that's not correct, then that really changes picture a lot. So I think it, it, it is an interesting thing to, to do, to say, well, if it's unhealthy, if you only eat meat, then we should see some signal. There should be something that happens that's negative. So does it? So that, that's also what I'm curious to find out. So yeah, I've been doing that since the start of the year. So yeah, I'm mean, just coming up for five weeks or six weeks now. So are you general. not having dairy or eggs this time? No, I am. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I am. Um, because it, I, I, I actually don't really like red meat. I, mm. I don't really enjoy eating it. Um, so again, it's a, there's a sustainability, a sustainability issue for, for me in terms of adhering to the diet where um, I did actually briefly try to do uh, just beef and water and I, I, I just found it desperate. I just oh, yeah eggs red meat and dairy high fat dairy then I could I could eat that for the rest of my life and be perfectly mm. fine yeah. yes it's interesting isn't it and it, it sort of comes down to the fact that nothing is well ever as as simple or as isolated as it might seem because I guess the issue with sort of red meat maybe well people thinking it it's unhealthy and it's a little bit like the sugar fat thing. It's like, what do things come with? Like people are not just eating meat. Like you said, like you, like you are almost most of, I guess, these pretty, I imagine are quite like big studies, I guess, just looking at like a whole population or, or, you know, a lot of people and how much red meat do they eat and what does that correlate with in terms of, I don't know, obesity, heart disease or whatever. These people are eating, there's so many factors in their life and, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty interesting to see that if you actually narrowed it down, like you have to, to animal fats, the fact that for you personally, and I mean, it'd be interesting if you did it with everyone, what negative outcomes are there? But you can look at certain cultures, like there are cultures, you know, like you said, will I get scurvy? Actually, blood and things like that have loads of vitamins in because there's, there's cultures that eat like that. You know, I went to Mongolia and mm. they eat a lot of meat and milk and yeah. horse milk and they don't. Yeah. you know I, I didn't we didn't really eat any vegetables when we were there apart from we did mention it and then we got these like pickled vegetables you know like, like from a tin yeah. um, but but you know they're, they're all like perfectly healthy and they're outdoors every day and like so you know there's yeah it's it's probably pretty hard to to boil down to just red meat I would imagine but it's it's not something I've looked into a lot but yeah so yeah it's been an interesting experiment all around my eczema has gone um, it it took it, it it wasn't like an overeat thing like it was before. It took a little bit longer to to go away, but it, but it has gone, um, which is great. Um, and I also just yeah, I just feel good. I mean, I think I think just generally feeling good is probably it could well be a, an effect of being consistently in ketosis, uh, just because it's like just more ketogenic foods. So I am continuously in ketosis and, and that might account for the other effects. Like, so, I mean, I'd, I, like I said, eating a mixed diet with more carbs in the second half of last year. So I'd gained weight. Uh, I was, I was really, a, uh, my, my head, my heaviest I tend to be on that type of diet, 68 kilos. So I've lost three kilos in the past five weeks. Um, and so, yeah, I just generally feel, feel pretty good. And it's just the absence of the absence of hunger steady energy yeah it just feels, yeah. feels good and no i mean it's it's cool and it's, in, 
it's interesting that it works for you with with the expert is there any guesses at what that actually is that's bringing that back like oh. pure speculation like I guess like you said when you introduce stuff back you're not introducing that many foods or probably I can imagine not even a massive volume of them but yeah. I don't know is it is that a carb thing or is it you know I don't know if you've got any idea yeah my prime suspect would be something to do with gut barrier function mm-hmm. um so it's like what's causing what's effect what you what you want in your gut is a as a, a, a proper barrier so there is that that endothelial lining is not broken your proper functioning endothelium which doesn't it only lets through what your body is trying to absorb and it's not allowing uh toxins from the gut which are bacterial toxins and also toxins from the environment um, from entering the systemic circulation and moving around your body and the immune system then has to activate and deal with that um, so i mean there is huge complication in how that can happen but even at a basic level so um one of the ways that uh, researchers use to uh, actually induce a big inflammatory response is to inject something called lipopolysaccharide, which is a bacterial toxin. It's what bacteria in your gut actually produce, and it should stay in the gut lumen and be excreted and not make it into your systemic circulation. So if you've got any damage to your gut lining um, and and things like LPS or, or other toxins can enter your circulation, then you can have an inflammatory state. And I think that it's fair to say that that can manifest itself in different inflammatory conditions like skin conditions and many other things, including depression, actually. Um, so that, that, that would be my prime suspect is an improvement in gut barrier function. And maybe associated with that is, uh, is actually changes in um, the, the gut microbiome. Um, so it may be that it's not the gut microbiome changes per se that are making the difference but it's just that um, their, the gut barrier function is improved, so it becomes less relevant. So you might have the bad gut bacteria, but they, they can't affect you in the same way if the gut barrier function is improved. Or perhaps the gut barrier function hasn't changed, but the gut bacteria have. It could be yeah. many combinations of those things. Uh, but that, that, that's, that would be my... If I was going to pin it on anything, then that would be my best speculation. <laughs> yeah and there's some really interesting stuff in the sort of world of like I don't know gut health research I don't know what you'd call it like looking at microbiome diversity and obesity and um and and yeah sort of what you're talking about which I, I think the phrase I've heard around is sort of like leaky gut I guess that can that can slightly go yeah kind of go go both ways but I think it's a very um interesting area like you said with mental health as well um and I do know that certain kind of um leafy greens and certain foods feed obviously you've got loads of bacteria in your gut and there's a dip there's a you know you have a distribution of them you'll have a certain uh, number of one a certain number of another like um, a certain number in total and you know I think what you eat can impact that in terms of like certain foods might uh, mean that you kind of bolster or in, increase a certain number of one population of bacteria and then there's the balance between those and it's all quite like a um yeah I think of like a kind of big sort of ecosystem and you can you can change it in a lot of different ways but yeah I think it is quite an interesting link with 
I guess what you'd maybe call like autoimmune type things as well. Um, yeah, and skin skin function. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting area and, and an area for people to look into. I think if there is things like depression or a skin thing or a, like an intolerance in general. Mm. I mean, a lot of the, the the science, again, because it's it's very focused on the benefits or potential benefits of a plant-based diet um, and and or adjusting the Western diet in favor of more fruits and vegetables. That's the general direction of, of nutrition. So a lot of the research is focused in that way. And um, so what I'm doing is almost like coming at the same problem from the completely opposite approach. <laughs> instead of instead of adding more variety of foods and more fiber to um, feed the gut microbiome in a way that the objective of that approach is to starve out the bad bacteria and feed the good bacteria and hopefully shift the balance in, in favor of a, a better profile. And a carnivore approach um, is, well, I mean, potentially it's not feeding any of them. <laughs> Although the, the, that, that's actually not what happens. Like there, there, there is still a microbiome in hypercarnivore animals of different types. Um, and uh, the, the bacteria can actually feed quite well on many aspects of, of animal foods, especially collagen, which call it, people often call as animal fiber. <laughs> um, and there's, there's multiple ways in which the gut bacteria and the gut function might be affected. I mean, one way is that um, colonocytes, you know, the endothelial cells in your colon actually use short chain fats as a fuel. So the gut bacteria produce short chain fats as a product and they're actually directly used by the colonocytes as fuel for metabolism and they maintain their own health from things like butyrate, which is a short chain fat, but butyrate is very, very similar to beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketone body that you have when you're in ketosis. So it may be that the colonocyte is actually improving its health through better fueling. It's coming from the other direction. It's coming from the systemic circulation rather than from the gut lumen. But these are all speculations that need, need tested. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. No, super interesting. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it's been nice to just catch up with you on a few of these. Uh, points because after we chatted last time I was like oh really wanted to chat about those but there was so much in the conversation that it's just super hard to I know to I get know. everything when you know um yeah when there's so many different like avenues to to explore so so yeah thanks it's really interesting 